Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a Doof Media podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward while those return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman, and this is my arena. No powers, no outside help. It's just you, me, and... Oh, hi. Scott, how did you get in here? I, I was uh, I was just eating some ice cream in the, the other room. Are, are you doing the Thunderdome thing again? Yes, you're messing it up. Um, I'm sorry, go ahead, uh, c- continue. <clears throat> it's just you, me, and the arena. Welcome to Thunderdome. Are, are you done now? Yes. <laughs> this is the weekly podcast where Matt and I eagerly dive into Wild Bill's world of mistreated teabags, bullet-ridden preteens, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret our, this ongoing web serial. This week, we are covering chapters 10.12 and 10.13. Our heroes are investigating the horrible events of the last chapter and hoping to find some clues that point to specific villains and stop this tide of anger from sweeping over the city. And then they're attacked by some jerks with guns. Everyone gets hurt. Everyone causes some hurt. Everyone's in really bad shape. Matt, what did you think of these two chapters? Um, yeah, these are some some very brutal brutal chapters. It's kind of fitting that it's that it's following up uh, the horrible violence that occurred but was not witnessed in, in the last uh, last episode. Basically, we've got we've got a different kind of violence than I think we've seen in Parahumans to date. And and I think when we get to that part, I'll talk about what I mean by that. Um, Everybody, everybody's in bad shape physically, mentally, and then I guess there's kind of a, well, it's not a bombshell, it's more of a cliffhanger bombshell at the end of all this. Yeah, what I really, what I really like about this as we kind of are coming to the conclusion of the arc is we have this chapter in 10.12, and I think we're going to get into the specifics of this a lot, where we're kind of like level setting, right? We've gone through all this stuff. We've had all these horrible things happen throughout the book. Um, they, they've come to a point of, of like, we're, we're right on the verge of this, this tide of anger sweeping over the entire place. And, and right before that moment, we have our character kind of take stock and everything. They look at the hero teams they've allied with and how those people are doing. Uh, she kind of looks over every member of her team and like thinks about them. Um, she kind of has a moment of self-reflection as well. And, and, in the moment, it seems like like outside of all the terribleness that's happening, people are OK. People are in a good place. And then, of course, that is ripped out from under them. And um, and then we move into a, a game changer, like a a, a a shift, if you will, um, where everything everything changes, like f- things fundamentally change for our heroes. Um from this section going forward and things are going to be very different going into the rest of the book. Yeah. I mean, we'll get, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about when, when we get there, but there's, there's a specific moment where you almost get this feeling of like, everything is fine, which, which you should know by now in a wild bow story is a terrible sign. Yeah. And it's not like, I don't even know if it's like, if it's that it is fine, it's like, you can see it's going to be fine. Uh-huh. Like, like they're in the, in the thing about that I love about this is like the juxtaposition of the fact that they're in the middle of investigating this horrible, gruesome crime that happened. Like they're still in the middle of this and trying to figure out who did this and, and what they're planning. So like, it's not like everything's cool, but you have this moment that, that this moment of despite all this badness, we've found each other and maybe that'll be enough to get us through this. And then that is is violently interrupted. 
So, yeah, yeah there's a lot to say. Um, it's going to be another long episode, I think, judging yeah. by the number of pages we have here. So let's, right. let's just get into it. All right. So just some quick announcements. Uh, once again, a uh, reminder, fan art contest number five with the theme of happy holidays from Earth Gimmel. Uh, the entries are due by Monday, December 17th at midnight Pacific time. And the winners will be revealed on Christmas Day. So get those entries in, please. Yeah. And I guess we can go ahead and announce right now, Matt, um, we're probably going to be taking off the week of Christmas. We're probably not going to have a show that week. Um, we haven't quite worked out how everything's going to line up yet. But our normal recording day is Tuesday night. Uh, Tuesday that week is Christmas Day. So I don't think we're going to be doing recording that day. So it probably just makes sense to take the week off and just have like an extra extra long episode the next week. Um, but that next day is New Year's Day. So I haven't quite worked out that yet. But uh, <laughs> we'll f- we can say for sure that we will be off the week of Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. Your early New Year's present will be a very long episode. There you go. There you go. Yeah. All right. Now let's get into the community spotlight where we read what people wrote from last week's thread. The discussion question last week was the world of parahumans is a dark place. And while though frequently employs horrific and uh, disturbing imagery to reinforce this fact. Discuss that approach to storytelling. Uh, so I, lo- I love this question. Um, and see- it seems like there were, was just a lot, either a lot more answers or a lot more really long answers than usual. Is that accurate? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, like, here's what happens. When I pull the answers from the Reddit thread, I always pull too much. So they seem uh-huh. longer. You you are much better at like concisely summing up people's answers than I am. Um, but yeah, we had a lot of really, really long answers. And I think we asked a very open ended question. We kind of wanted to see, you know, when you think of horror in a Wild Bow story, what does that make you think about? And and the the range of answers reflected that. And I think the coolest thing about this question, Matt, is that the reasons why people cited for why horror works in these stories also are, in my opinion, like the reason why these stories work so well, just in general, like just like like a lot of it was, you know, well, it, the, the horror reflects on the characters and it reflects on the themes and it's like it's functional. And and, and I, I think it's just like it's we ask a general question about horror in relation to the story and we get answers that that really shed light on why the writing is so good just in general. And I thought that mm-hmm. was fantastic. Yeah. Just how it's good storytelling. Yeah. yeah. All right, so uh, let's get into these answers. So first, uh, Bisexual Punch Party says that Wildbow's use of horror is necessary for setting up uh, one of the most important aspects of any piece of writing, the stakes. They say that we love Wildbow's writing because it makes us feel things. The horror takes characters we genuinely care about and puts them into horrible, terrible stakes, uh, which leads to bigger emotional payoffs for the reader. Um, absolutely. That's, I mean... The, the, uh, we've said many times one thing that he's great at is making us connect to and love the characters um, empathize with them and and thus like it just brings us that much lower when they're put in horrible horrible situations yeah yeah and uh Calerno 985 actually expands upon uh punch party's comment outlining all the ways in which the horror elevates those stakes um their argument is that in a world where people can already do like these specifically super powerful things there has to be like an exceptional level of horror to keep up with that but then they go further to discuss this idea of Worm and Ward as using these really horrific elements of the story to draw a clear distinction between the world of parahumans and the superhero stories on which it lays its canvas. 
they say worm is defined at least in part by its differences from the superhero stories we are used to the fates worse than death in this story are absolutely a part of making that distinction i think that's a really good point that that this is this story at least is is laid on our basic understanding of superhero stories and the horror elements are one way in which it can very distinctly show how it's different than that yeah that's something that definitely hits home in worm where um you know taylor doesn't like step back and describe what her world is like very much at all like you're you don't know that the nine exist before they're like almost upon you basically narratively so yeah so it's a way of like you're you're inferring things and then the story is injecting these little these little jots of things where you're like oh god oh god this is oh my god um it's just a wonderful way of kind of sculpting the story and its tone so uh fetishist focuses on wildbo's use of body horror and specifically how body horror is depicted in worm and how that has changed in ward they say worm often heavily emphasized the unknown slash horror slash dramatic slash surprising slash grotesque elements of body horror um and it uses that kind of horror as a cautionary tale uh that can happen when people with power go too far to fetishist, the body horror in Ward is distinctly different, however. They say that so many of the characters have survived body horror and are therefore living in quote-unquote horrifying bodies. Because of this, our characters tend, uh, I'm quoting now, our characters tend, I think, to skip past the kind of visceral, vis- visceral horror we see in Worm and instead go straight to a more humanizing and empathetic response to body alteration, but also a more calm and practical one. For Ward's central characters who have spent so long reconciling themselves to living in horrifying bodies, I think the idea of body horror is almost obsolete. I think that's a really delightful evolution. We saw the beginnings of that kind of relationship to body horror with Gregor in Worm, but Ward dwells on it over and over again in ways that emphasize that it's possible to live through and live with physiological alteration in a grounded way with an emphasis on practicality and support and adaptation and contribution and integration into a broader world. Yeah, I took a big I took a big quote from that, but that's because I like that so much. That's and and one thing we didn't include is that this person works with uh, um, disabled people. And that's one thing that they went through and they're kind of like they went through a transition where they used to be very like turned off by body horror until they were kind of put in a situation where they were working with these kind of people that have, you know, facial disfigurements and things like that all the time. And that kind of got them to a position where. They, they just don't even consider it a thing anymore. And then they related that to how the characters in Ward also seem to be much less bothered about the, the horrifying, grotesque nature of the thing itself than by the empathetic implications of it. And I think that's very true. Like for Victoria in, in these last two chapters, it was not about how disgusting and horrifying it is for there to be little pieces of a person all over. Like the, the truly horrifying moment of it to her was what this must be like for the person that's forced to live through it. And yeah, that's, that's a really fascinating take and and it isn't like kind of a a different exploration than it was in worm yeah the empathy aspect of it and and it reminds me of the overriding idea that worm was was more about trauma ward is more about recovering from trauma and so like you know doing something horrible to somebody's body you know taylor you know having her arm shattered or whatever is horrifying but then it's it's all of the aftermath that ward is about yeah 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 Absolutely. All right. So next up, Megafire talks about how Wild Bill uses restraint to make horrifying moments work again and again. 
Bo's stories, they say, manage to push the envelope just far enough to get you to just enough snock, just just enough to shock you and force the emotional reaction of you. And then he lets it sit and stimmer and lets the characters involved deal with the consequences of what happens, bringing us back down to something approximating normal. And then he does it again. And I think that's a really good point, because like there there is especially with how long these stories are, there is a chance that like it just kind of gets worn out, right? Like you've you've gone to a place where you can, oh, this is just more of this. It's more of this type of thing. Uh, been there, done that. But I think I think there is restraint in how often we do this. And, you know, you know, mixing up. It's not just a through line of horror. We mix it around. We, we drop it in in different places. It's very true. Yeah, I like that. Roundest Frog notes that the horror works in Wild Bo's stories because these stories are never about the horror, they're always about the characters. The stories don't delve in horror merely for horror's sake, but in order to demonstrate how different characters react and change um, in response to some of the worst things imaginable. Yeah. yeah. I don't have anything I, to add to that. It's just really a really concise, great answer. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And Arena Venera basically agrees with them that the horror is never used merely for sh- shock value in and of itself. Um, which is very true. It's not, we're not just trying to gross you out here. We're doing things with it. Yeah. I mean, both of these comments, like it's very crucial. I think that, that there's no like cheap, like cheap shock horror. It's, it's always the, the empathy and the relating to, oh my God, what would this be like if this happened to you and forcing you to put yourself in that situation? Um, and not just like, isn't this, isn't this terrible? You yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Since <laughs> says uh, in <laughs> in Worm, Wild Bill used horror to take Taylor, who had a really unsettling power by default, and help you empathize with her by making her feel tame when compared to the type of horror she's constantly up against. A lot of the horror is used, uh, quoting here, a lot of the horror is used to normalize some of Taylor's actions by making so many other things that much worse. By doing this, Wild Bill can allow Taylor to use her abilities to, to, to their fullest without making us question her as much as we otherwise might. That's really interesting. Yeah, and I and I, I, I generally agree with that. And I think, you know, we, we've gotten flack for some of our opinions on Taylor in the past. But I do think it is very important that even as you start to question Taylor's behavior and the choices that she's making, I think it is very important that you you empathize with her throughout the story. And I think... Wildbo is very conscious that a person with this kind of power that is doing this kind of things risks losing that general level of empathy. And so by by comparatively making everyone around them so much worse, you can cling to that that empathetic relationship more than you normally would be able to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because like intellectually, you can realize like, hey, you know, Taylor's power is actually a lot better than she than she thinks it is. But then she goes up against somebody like Bonesaw, who's not only very like dangerous but also scary um and 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 it kind of puts you more in taylor's camp even more than you already are yeah yeah agree next up we have sarah penguin who says uh they note that when dealing with the themes of trauma bullying and hopefully in this story recovery it's really hard to avoid the level of darkness and horror that these stories have to face if you you couldn't really dive into um into these themes without 
showing some pretty horrific stuff. So it's kind of like the nature of, of the type of story he wants to tell is going to bring about these kind of things. But they also note that the there is this kind of innate morbid curiosity that human beings have um, when it comes to horrifying things. We, we want to look at the car crash footage. We want to understand the mind of the serial killer. And to Sarah Penguin, these stories utilize those innate human curiosities to hook the reader. Um, and that's a, a valuable tool in that. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I've the w- one thing that I think I've said a number of times is like, while those stories make me feel things uh, in a way that not a, a lot of I mean, not, it's weird to say that like most most fiction will give you like a feeling here and there. Right. But mm-hmm. while, while those while those very good at kind of playing the emotions like a harp. Um, that's that's kind of what he's aiming for, I think. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, even this isn't even like as as grim, dark, and horrible as what we're as what we're really talking about here. But just like the very, you know, the first two arcs of Worm, you've got you've got the bullying against Taylor, and it's actually very, it's actually very painful to read if you have any kind of. I mean, I think I think every almost everyone has like a background of someone being mean to them at some point, right? Yeah, like we, yeah. we can all relate to that, and, and it's it's like really easy to put yourself in her shoes and feel really kind of broken up about the the links that these these girls are going to to make her life miserable. And it's like, yeah, that's that's a kind of horror, right? That's a kind of mundane horror. Um, yeah, I, absolutely. Maybe I'm stretching the way I'm using the word there, but like I think that's the the through line maybe that Sarah Penguin is is picking out here. Yeah, I think so. Tinky forecasts as the horror serves to push our characters to their extremes. A character like Victoria, who's often very composed and controlled, needs to be pushed into moments to expose their flaws. I like that. Yeah, I like that a lot, too. I mean, that's a general like conflict forces characters to reveal um, parts about themselves and and horrific conflict enforces that horrifically. (laughs) Yeah, right. It it makes her makes her have to be even stronger when the things she's facing are that much worse. Yeah, it's the whole Darth Vader and death star thing mm-hmm. you know what i'm talking about <laughs> anyway Stellhex says that they can't stand body horror and usually have to skip any and all bone saw chapters on a reread the latest chapters however didn't really bother them that much because the horror in these was much more abstract and kind of sanitized it wasn't really detailed to the level of of gross body horror and i just thought that's interesting because i think you know each and every person that approaches story has has different parts of things that bother them um the body horror stuff doesn't really get to me at all. Um, but like we said last week, this this particular thing really, really, really got to me. So I think it's just fascinating to see what what are different triggers for different people. Yeah, I agree. I, it's always kind of unpredictable uh, to me which aspects of the of the horror in these stories will I'll I'll, I'll view as like dang that's good versus like <laughs> versus like actually creeps me out, you know. And and like you said, the, the one last week really unnerved me. Yeah. Beard of Valor mentions that Wild Bill uses horror to bring things to extremes and forces characters to confront themes uh, that to most existence are abstract thought experiments. Uh, I, I like that idea. Part of the horror element is how it creates exceptions. It's not okay to steal food unless you're starving. It's not okay to shoot a baby unless it's to save it from eternal suffering. But the ex- exceptions to these standout abilities and the horrors that accompany them force society and the characters within it to address these themes. By pairing ability with trauma, the characters within the story are confronted with a choice. Do we institutionalize this person and take away their freedom and occupation and utility, or do we find a way to coexist and shore that person up without imposing too heavily on others? 
that's really interesting. Yeah. And it, I, I, horror yeah. as the tool to, to those, those tough questions is very important, I think. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that I'm, I'm really kind of fascinated by this answer. Cause it's like, I, I think I said a long, long time ago, like worm is excellent, excellent science fiction, even though people don't really describe it that way. And this is one way in which it is excellent, excellent science fiction. It's that these powers, which are a fundamentally science fictional idea or, or a fantastical idea are being used in ways that are exploring the human condition, which is, which is in my opinion, kind of the, the highest use that you can put these ideas to. Yeah, so that's really cool. I mean, I completely agree with that. I, I love horror movies like I, I, yeah. I am a big fan of horror, but my favorite horror is in which the horrible elements are used like any good genre fiction does to say something about us, to say something about who we are, about what we struggle through. Um, and and that is that is where, in my opinion, it is used to its best ability. And I think every time we see it in Wild Bow stories, that is what is it is doing. It is it is using these horrific elements to 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 teach us about ourselves. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Cool. All right. Finally, we have to Sarwat, who uh, makes some great points related to how horror aids in both character development and world building. Um, these are some points that have been echoed by some other people. Um, so the thing I really wanted to zoom in on there response was this idea of efficacy. They say that the format of episodic release is well suited to dramatic shift from non-horror to horror and back again. The genre shift is less jarring and it falls within pre-existing and designed story breaks. This means that going from zero to oh my fucking god why and back to zero or at least low levels works really well rather than coming across as inconsistent or out of nowhere. And I like this idea a lot because I think I'm always kind of looking for examples and reasons for why this particular format of storytelling uh, is unique and has its own advantages. And I think that's something that is absolutely true here, that that one of the things we mentioned is the reason why the horror in the story never gets um, too much is because it's broken up. It, there's restraint shown and the serialized nature of the story allows that restraint to come without the tonal shifts being so ridiculous that it just becomes like absurd. Yeah, I like that idea that it's that part of it is is the medium. I also think maybe I think a, a quote that I've heard you say a few times is that a book teaches you how to read it. Mm -hmm. And one thing about well, like, like Worm in particular is, and this is not something that I even noticed as we were um, th the first time I read it. It was something I noticed as we started going through it arc by arc and realizing that the arcs kind of had a, a structure to them. Um, that, that was that was consistent um, and then and then sort of was violated sometimes to, to effect. Uh, and basically the story is teaching you to be OK with the tone um, going from how's Taylor's home life going, how's her relationships with her friends. Now she has to fight somebody who's trying to saw her skull open with a, with a circular saw um, <laughs> and and then back to a relationship drama again. Um, like the, the book, the book trains you to do that so that, so that it's not jarring. Um, I think some of that certainly is the medium and some of it is the way Wild Bo just, uh, sets your expectations through how he writes the story. Yeah. I mean, th that makes me wonder what it would be like. Cause I mean, the one thing that I have never experienced with these stories is doing what a lot of people do with them, which is it, which is binge reading them right there. Mm -hmm. I mean, many people that love this book, like picked up on it after it was finished, but they didn't read it in a controlled manner. They read it until they passed out and then they read it again. And I wonder like how much of that tonal shift 
um, that we say works very well in a serialized format is damaged when you when you binge it in that in that kind of way. Um, I, like it's something that I have no way to to you know relate to or or, or guess on because I've never read any of these stories this way. So, um, so I think that's an interesting enough comment that I kind of want to address it actually because um, I binged it pretty hard mm-hmm. and I feel like um, it's almost like there's two stories that are twining around each other in, in worm, like I'm thinking of worm because worm is, is it's a, it's a whole thing in my head, whereas Ward isn't finished, but it's almost like there's two stories. There's the story of Taylor and there's the story of Skitter. And you, when you're, when you're in the story of Skitter, you're kind of excited to get back to the story of Taylor and find out what's going to happen with, with her relationships, because usually they're left in limbo and then Cape stuff happens and then you don't you don't really the 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 pieces don't fall until the end of the arc or maybe the beginning of the next arc. And when you're reading about Taylor's personal life, you're excited to know what's going to happen next with Skitter and her cape battles and her rising empire, whatever complicated thing is happening. So um, that's one really really interesting thing that I don't think I've ever really verbalized about. Um, especially it comes through especially when you're binging it because um, I don't know if you're consciously you know aware that this effect is happening, but there's this clear sense that you're being propelled forward by the excitement of finding out what's going to happen in the other branch of the story that you're not in right now, even though you're enjoying the one that you're in also. That's really interesting. Yeah. I've never really said that out loud, but I think that's always been in my head somewhere. Yeah. I I like that because like it, it, it's like, you know, there, um, there, there is a difference between being able to click next chapter um, and not having that ability. But, but what you're saying is there's still demarcation marks structurally throughout the story, even though you're not physically, you know, separated from the story by it not being written yet. There's still the story still within its own structure, like has clear separation between these things. So it's not it's not totally, totally jarring when you move between things still. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It, it keeps things separated for you. Yeah. 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 Cool. Cool. All right. Let's move on into the chapters. Great answers as always, guys. Thank you. Yeah. So we begin 10.12 and the weight of everything settles on Victoria as she lands on the bloodstained snowy field. The other heroes interested in the matter converge on the scene of the atrocity. So we've talked about this before, but I really love when Wildbow dives into imagery like this and then like the imagery is very specifically drawn and defined by our own character. The, the, the meaning here is not subtle. Victoria literally spells it out for us, right? She says she's she lands on the ground and feels the weight of gravity and then also feels a different weight on her, a weight of, of like an emotional um, psychological weight as as everything is kind of building up on her. Um, but but it like it being obvious, it being spelled out imagery doesn't make it bad. And I think what it does here um, is kind of reinforce that Victoria has switched back into a mode that went missing the last couple chapters. Right. Like we talked about last week, how the, the second half of chapter uh, 10 and, and basically all of chapter 11 Victoria was not herself, um, that mm-hmm. she was going through a lot of stuff and she was kind of. I don't want to say compartmentalizing away because that has a lot of implications in the story, but she was she was 
pushing away certain thoughts um, in order to to very clinically make it through these difficult moments. There was very little input from her internal monologue. In fact, if you go back and read the the Kate meeting at the end of of 10, 11, you'll really, really notice how like it's almost all dialogue. Like there is no kind of narrative direction from Victoria or, or very, very little narrative direction from Victoria between all these lines of dialogue. So we have this this Victoria a certain way and then we open up this chapter and a little time has gone by and we kind of see that Victoria has slipped back into like maybe she's calmed herself down or like worked through it a little bit to the point where she's able to like slip back into this very introspective contemplative person that we know her to be and and like being aware of the emotional and psychological weight that that is on her right now is very much a part of that Victoria that we know. Yeah, it seems like a very Victoria thing that she can cope as long as she's moving forward and feels like she's dealing with things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the last the last chapter, the last couple chapters were her um, being caught up in something that was so emotionally salient and perturbing her so much that she, she all, all she was doing was kind of hanging on um, and just getting through it. Yeah. But but now she's she's doing something about it. She's she's working on it. And like you said, she's bringing all of her kind of mental tools to bear on it. And and this is the Victoria that we're used to. Yeah. I very much agree that kind of the the voice returns in the in this in this chapter. Yeah, and and I I really think that like that clear spelling out of that imagery, that clear defining of the metaphor of of the landing and the and the weight from gravity being restored, um, sends that image to the reader that this is yeah. this is Victoria's voice again. Yeah, I agree. So uh, we we kind of meet a bunch of these capes. We meet uh, we meet Brio, the pirate ninja. We touch base with Relay, the movement support cape that we've met before. Uh, Crystal Clear is in a new costume, and we see Annalise again. Who you know I, I I kind of forgot about. It's just been a long time, um, but it's it's we're basically touching base with the characters who are going to be relevant in a little bit. So the text is very subtly like reminding us who these people are and kind of what they do. Yeah, uh, a good many more capes filter in, though, including the major malfunctions. Yeah, but so this is this is our introduction to team. Um, we're going to investigate the things and not go crazy and kill all the bad guys. This is that yeah. that section of the hero team. We have the uh, the other team that's going off and and doing their violent stuff. And we have these guys that are just like, OK, we've got we're on the clock. This is our this is our team. What I like about this part of the chapter and and this chapter in a whole is we see Victoria kind of looking over these teams here and she wants to reach out to some of them and talk like she sees people she knows and she wants to like make sure they're okay to warn them about what they're about to see here but once again we're in Victoria's voice again we're in that standard voice and she realizes in this moment like I can't do that right now. I've I've got so much on me right now that that managing these other people might just be too much much for me. Like she has that awareness that she's like maybe maybe I just need to not put another thing on my shoulders right now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 what I love we've talked about this before but in this moment where she's thinking about this, we get these moments of internal dialogue that is distinct and different from internal narrative, right? Like we have the internal narrative, which is Victoria's thoughts. And then we have very specific italicized, like almost thinking aloud, but not aloud dialogue where she says, I'll warn, warn finale before, before they see anything bad. And then it merely goes to what are the odds that any of these heroes who acted outraged over the treatment of the navigators even visited the victims or their crime scene? Wayfair is accepted. 
So in, in spite of her ability to to manage or take in anything else, she still says that if the chips like if it comes to it, I will warn re- finale. I will reach it. I will take that upon me when warn that. And then suddenly that thought shifts to a completely independent thought, which is all those people that were against me, all those people that were against the, with this way of dealing with it. Did they even bother to come out here? Did they even bother to see all this stuff? And I, I, I think it's really interesting to me because up to this moment, I would say that Victoria's frustration towards the group that didn't side with her has been pretty reserved. Like there was that one moment in the last chapter where she said enough. But again, because we weren't we didn't really see her narrative voice there. We haven't really seen how just how frustrated she is. And this is kind of like um, a hint at, at, at how mad she is about the, the the things did not go the way she wanted them to go in that meeting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. I like this this little bit of, of resentment um, and the fact that she's she's struggling with it in the background. And, you know, like you said, we didn't we didn't feel how annoyed she was back then. Mm-hmm. But now it says I, I feel petty and annoyed. Yeah. Uh, or I felt petty and annoyed. And it's like, yeah, I mean, that's it's reasonable. And it's also good that she's conscious of it. Yeah. Well, um, I, I just love that. Like it just, it's, it's very easy to switch over to that, right? Like we have these two statements that aren't necessarily connected, like I'll warn finale before they see anything too bad. And then suddenly we switch to nobody else even bothered to see it. Like, like here's, here's a person that's on our side and they haven't even seen it and I'm going to protect them from seeing it. But those assholes didn't even bother. And I think it, it really betrays the level of her frustration that she just makes that leap from one statement to the other. And then, and yeah, she's, she's so angry right now that she's like, she's afraid of, of that anger translating, um, towards like, damn it. Mm-hmm. Not that she's going to like be angry at the wide eyed heroes. She calls them here, but that like her anger at the situation is going to influence them in a way she doesn't want them to. So, uh, she doesn't, she doesn't head over to them. She's headed over to our new knife friend. Yeah. It's, I think it's also, um, good to point out that, you know, the theme of this arc is, uh, polarization splitting and, 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 uh, pushing people into different camps. And this, this line is just reminding us that, Hey, the heroes are having a little bit of internal issues. You've got the other hero team, um, off pursuing vengeance, basically, while Victoria and her team are here being detectives, and so that the heroes have been split into these two camps. And without this, like without this line, you might not necessarily remember that as you go into this. Yeah, good point. Good point. Um, yeah, so she goes to meet meet Knife Man, and she thinks relatively neutral, leading toward positive thoughts about <laughs> Annalise's costume. Yeah relatively neutral thoughts is not a great sign for how uh, this guy's flirting is going to go. I do like that. She notes how skinny he is, right? Like Uh she makes special note, like showing just how narrow his waist was and his costume bottoms were similarly slimming. Um, It makes you kind of wonder. It makes me wonder at least is every like description of every dude that she sees in the story has been a little bit, just had a little bit of comparing them to, to gallant ness to it um i i bring this up only because we're going to very specifically talk about dean here in a few minutes um and as it's something that's kind of constantly on her mind and i just wonder like i, I actually kind of like jumped back and looked up like what what dean's build was and i didn't think i didn't find anything like concrete about it but i always imagined him as kind of the the football player like the athletic like not like big but like toned and and yeah. and with muscle um 
not not the level of like skinny like like poor, like so skinny that you notice it in in right. this guy in his costume right yeah I, I think i think victoria's descriptions of him are always along the lines of like fit you know yeah um so which which is not necessarily antithetical to being slim no but but, but usually usually those are different things especially the way she describes things yeah yeah um yeah so he's got this mask with no eye holes which is uh which is interesting yeah we're gonna talk um, about that in a bit when i go full uh conspiracy theory okay Th- thanks to you thanks to you, you okay. led me you led me down a chocolate hole and i just dove right in uh, oh yeah it's funny because i made an offhand comment so it's sort of sort of mine but then it appears to have really sunk its teeth into you anyway we'll get there i hate you um yeah eye holes so he expresses uh Annalise expresses curiosity about the crime scene and the weapons used uh, and this combined with his name makes it seem like he must be like a weapons thinker of some kind um i, I like the line um or or occam's razor the guy with the blade theme said yeah just fun with wordplay just wild by having fun with some wordplay it's it's it's, yeah. it's always good i think that like you know, we don't talk about that very much other than it's like, oh, look, it's fun with wordplay. But I think that does give like a certain amount of energy and propulsiveness to your writing um, when it's just like when you can kind of chuckle to yourself as you read is like, oh, that was that was clever. Um, and yeah. I, I think it kind of sets the tone of this early part of the chapter, which is, you know, considering the 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 seriousness of the stuff that they're dealing with, the tone of this chapter is lighter, is is not as ghastly. Um, and, and that stuff like that kind of helps with it. Yeah, absolutely. And also it's, I mean, this is Wildlow's thought, but it's Victoria's thought, you right. know, so, so we're, we're learning a little bit about our, our protagonist's sense of humor and making them a little bit more endeared to us. Yeah. It's like she just told a joke to herself. It's great. Right. Which she does again later, actually, <laughs> like explicitly. Yeah. So Annalise is able to actually, uh, point out that the bigger member of the, uh, attacking team did it that that, uh, that did the deed tried to mercy kill scaffold uh, but failed to yeah so th- this whole part like as he's kind of relaying information to to uh, victoria is like giving us clues about what happened here and who might be responsible for it like we get we get this information that the attacks were extremely well coordinated so either the group had been working together for a very long time or maybe there was like some sort of like super coordination power or something um the one with the claws the big guy with the claws felt bad about it afterwards um there was one person that he thinks like swooped in from directly above and stabbed with either blades or talons um and and because they like managed to stop themselves as they were going down they were probably flying um which hints that there could be more people there than there thought there were because they were you know counting people based off of footprints so there could be five attackers and not four so after all this i wanted to get like what is your you know running theory on this thing if you have one like who did this like like we we've we been getting a little bit of clues there's there's a lot of red herrings in there as you mentioned last week but but do we have enough to kind of formulate a theory on who was responsible for this thing uh well well i didn't um the, the closest thing i got to anything was the idea of like claws and talons from the sky proximal to chicken little getting his host eagle i thought was interesting and and like the idea of chicken little being involved in this it would imply like some kind of master power and it's all that's the thing is it's all very like that's not really a theory that's just kind of like 
connecting two dots and then staring at like your page with a line <laughs> on it and being like, hmm, yes. So, um, but, but what, what do you think, Scott? Well, I had, so I had, I came up with a theory and then like, so a little inside baseball, what happens sometimes is I come up with a theory and I say, Matt, is this a good theory? And you say, yeah, I like this. Let me go see if anyone else has thought of this. And you go search the internet and see, and then you're like, yeah, someone already came up with that. And I'm like, damn it. Um, but we're going to talk about it anyway. Um, I was thinking about like, well, what if this is, what if this is just Chris? Like, and, and I haven't quite worked out the detail of like how he would not be on this on Shin anymore and back on this, this universe, but bear with me here. Like we know that he has a, a form that, um, can fly and has talons, right? We know he's got bigger forms with weapon. Like what if, the dude can like change between his forms way faster than we thought. And he's just like, like cycling through forms. And then like the thought process is, well, then the big one, maybe that was one of the ones that has like an emotional attachment to like regret or, or like, like that the forms think differently. So that one looked on the scene and looked on the carnage and said, Oh no, I regret that I did this and want to fix it. Um, I don't know if that has any, any, like if that's going to work, I just, I kind of like it. And I know we got a, a Chris interlude today that it probably, my theory has immediately been proven wrong by the time people listen to this thing, but I don't know. It just, it just seemed to fit in a fun kind of way for me. Yeah. I like that. As soon as you said it, I was like, you know what, even if that's not the case, that's a really fun idea. And like, it's, it's fun because the only, the only expectations it, it breaks are ones that could very easily be, um, lies yeah. by chris which makes it even more fun yeah so yeah i was like that's cool that's yeah cool. i mean and and a lot of this is is you know predicated on the fact that at the very end of these chapters we get the the moment where there's obviously going to be a chris reveal and so it, it to me it just makes sense if if in this moment we're going to reveal something about chris it's going to tie in to the thing that's been dominating the last few chapters um so yeah. that's that's a little bit of where my why my mind kind of went there but again mm. it's just theory i don't know um i i wish i could have read you you've read the chris chapter so you might know and you're being you're being your usual matt self but i don't know anything that happens in that chapter yet so I wish I could read it, but I can't yet. I have to do this first. So let's let's yep. do this so I can go read it. Yep. At this point, I'm just glad that I've perfected the art of not leaking any information <laughs> to you effortlessly. So Annalise expresses some doubt that uh, various of the heroes present can really handle the level of carnage that they're about to witness. Uh, as the plan is, of course, for Lookout to use her past camera to basically replay the crime. So, like, everyone present is going to see all this horrible stuff happening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, with future knowledge of how this chapter is going to end, what we're doing here is actually, like, really, really clever. Because Victoria's conversation with Annalise allows us to to like fully take stock in everyone around us. We, we started with her friends. We move on to her team specifically. And then lastly, we kind of talk about Victoria herself. And, and I think this is actually laying a lot of groundwork for what's to come. But um, I think this is the start of us building to the moment of the gunshot cracking across the land. So this this whole conversation where we're going through each of these hero teams and being like, well, what about them? Well, what about them? Mm -hmm. well, what about them? Uh, I think it's, it's a great kind of groundwork in that regard. Yeah, and this is an example of Wabo doing multiple things at once is we're learning about these teams that are present. We're establishing this, um, I, don't, I don't know if I want to call it a, 
bond, but you know, we're establishing the interaction between Victoria and Annalise, getting yeah. to know him a little bit. And of course, we're establishing who is present so that when guns start going off, uh, the text, you know, has already has already painted that picture for us. Yeah, I like that. It's it's doing it's doing the ge- geographical heavy lifting while also serving a narrative purpose. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So there's this one moment here that I wanted to focus on before we leave, because Victoria is talking about the major malfunctions to Annalise, and he basically mentions that, hey, they fought an army of teacher thaws thralls last time and they did pretty well. But then she like immediately clarifies that, like immediately walks it back and is like, well, to be fair, they were just like B-level thralls. The really good ones were at the prison. We didn't they didn't do that much. And Annalise kind of immediately responds with, if you fought an army, take credit for fighting an army. Give them that credit. And it's this this fun little moment that like I think you could read very uncharitably of Victoria, like of not wanting to give them credit. And I don't think it's that she doesn't want to give them credit. I think it's that she's genuinely, genuinely worried about this team and worried about the things that they're going to have to go through. And by like giving them big, huge credit for this big, huge thing they did, they're more likely to be involved in other things that could get them in trouble. So I think it comes from a place of protectiveness of the group rather than like doubting them. Um, and I think it's just a really, really great moment that I enjoyed. Yeah, I mean, she she knows their history. She kind of knows that they're kids and, and that was like their first confrontation. So on the one hand, wants to give him credit. On the other hand, wants to be like, well, you know, maybe it was just luck. So, yeah, I, I, I kind of understood where she was coming from. But also his response kind of makes you like him a little bit because he's like, yeah, um. I don't know, standing up for them, I guess. Yeah, I think I think it's a really endearing moment to him. Like, look, no, if you if you did something, you know, you deserve credit for it. Like, allow yourself that. Like, don't don't quantify your success, qualify your successes, like take them. Yeah, you've earned them. Yeah, Yeah, it's a really endearing little moment. I like this guy. I like him a lot. Yeah. So they continue to chat and they go on a long digression about recycler and retouch the hippie capes from the green team that was called Dryad Project 3 back in the day, which was a sponsored team that dramatically imploded. And it's really interesting because here Vicky is kind of showing off her cape nerddom, giving this guy the lowdown on a bit of cape history that he doesn't know anything about. And then, like, mentally she's holding back stuff that she knows but considers privileged because it came from her mom and she doesn't want to engage in gossip. But then that's kind of already what she's doing. So the the whole thing is interesting. Yeah, I I think this section of the chapter really like pretty well encapsulates the tug of war that goes on inside Victoria's head when it comes to, you know, analyzing a person for the things that happened to them in the past versus what they're trying to do in the future. Recycler and retouch are these people that have kind of been screwed over, but they just got, they just got dealt a bad hand. They joined this gung ho organization meant to do something about the world, something they really genuinely care about. And and even though it's something that Victoria says she had, and the rest of the world like admitted that like it's probably not a priority. Like I think it's very hard to convince people that like climate change is a priority when there's a Godzilla monster walking around blowing up cities every few months. Mm-hmm. Um, but but they, they seemed like genuinely earnest about this whole thing and got screwed over for it. But but in her mind, it's like, well, do they deserve an opportunity to try again in this new world and not be haunted by those things in the past? Yeah, but. Also, I know these things about like they they have been damaged by this. They're changed by this. And it's like this this push and pull between like, well, do they deserve the benefit of the doubt? Do they deserve to be like given this chance 
or should we be constantly worried about them because of these bad things that happen? And that's I mean, that's that's like Victoria, like that's fundamentally what she's dealing with throughout most of the story so far. Yeah, I mean, you could even say it's slightly what's happening with her take on the major malfunctions where she's like, she wants to give him credit for this great thing that they did. But then she's like, oh, yeah, now I remember, though, that they're just kids. Yeah, it's like, well, I mean, yeah, but like, when are you going to let them not be kids anymore? Right. Well, and it's it's something that she does for her team often. I mean, her her team Mm -hmm. is filled with people that did some bad shit that are are. Or, or had some bad shit happen to them that are trying to not let them this rule their entire life. And, and like, I just remember that, like, just the, I don't believe in forgive and forget this idea that like, that she didn't want to, her memories of what happened with Amy to be deleted from her, because if, if those things were removed, like th- those memories being there means that she'll never fall for it again. Like this idea that like, we have to, we have to remember the bad things. We have to consider the bad things because we have to protect ourselves from those people doing those things again. And it's just this like constant war inside her when she, I think she genuinely wants to give people the second chance they deserve, but she can't help but think of those bad things. Now in this situation, it helps that the information that she was given about the the bad things that, that might've happened to these people as a result of all this stuff was given to her from her mom. So it taints it in a way that that, <laughs> that she doesn't want to share it with people. Um, I wonder if she would have held back the information if she had gotten it from a different source. You know, I wonder how much of the Carol being the source of that information is what caused her to to not feel comfortable with spreading it. You know? Yeah, no, that's interesting to think about. Uh, I don't obviously have an answer, um, but yeah, I mean, it's also interesting that her she thinks about her mom and doesn't like immediately like flinch. Or, true, true. Or, you know, yeah, that's um, I also wonder yeah. if Carol is like frequently getting people drunk and having them dish information, <laughs> like if that's a thing that just so happened to happen this one time or if that's like one of her information gathering strategies. But that's maybe a little bit unfair to Carol. I, d- I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was funny. Um, but uh, I I don't know. It's an interesting kind of throwaway that has gives you a lot to think about, mm-hmm. but not really with any conclusiveness true yeah 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 so before she can join her team who who arrives after she does analyze says that he wishes she joined foresight <laughs> um and he actually seems skeptical that she's okay with you know the team that we called the misfit toys for <laughs> obvious reasons for a long time mm-hmm. uh the nicest thing he can muster up to say about breakthrough is there are some good ones in there yeah i i, I really like this because like we don't see the perception of breakthrough outside of Victoria's head very often, right? Like we see, we, we have, we have our perception of these characters because we feel like we know them. We have Victoria's perception of these characters. We don't see the general public's perception. And I think we know enough about it through the last few characters we've gotten to know how complicated it is. Like we've got this surveillance tinker, this former fallen guy that let people burn alive, this dude that, quote unquote murdered his twin brother oh and his twin brother is there too and he just seems cool with it now um the Uh former slaughterhouse nine member oh yeah there's this kid that turns into monsters um and also he just went to go rule a planet like Uh like from an outside perspective this is a very worrying group yeah and it seems like a lot of people also know about that they don't know actually what happened to victoria but it seems like a lot of people are like i I know something about the asylum i know that you 
went into the asylum for a while, yeah. wink. And like, I'm sure, I'm sure everyone just assumes the worst, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I love, so. I, I love the result of this though. Like, like this, are you, are you sure you're happy with these guys? And it causes Victoria to kind of look over and we kind of see the scene playing out like where there's no dialogue to go along with it. Cause she's too far away, but we see this team interacting with each other and we see, you know, Ashley being protective of Kenzie, making sure Kenzie is not seeing the scene. Um, we, we see Sveta looking very happy and then she comes over there and joins the, the protecting of Kenzie. So we got this, this, this quick beat where, Ashley and Sveta are teaming up to do something. So maybe a hint that, you know, whatever awkwardness between them is maybe patched up a little bit. Um, we look over at rain and, and she says he's transforming and gives this very Victoria line about how, I don't know if he should be freed from his burden, but as long as he's working towards, uh, working it off, maybe one day he should be, um, she she comments about how Tristan is is like talking people through the scene and once again being his charismatic, you know, natural leader type of self um, that is that is kind of controlling everyone and entrancing everyone with his voice. She looks over this team, this team that anyone else would be like extremely worried about and and scared of. And she says, I like them. And she does like the, there's there's no there's no hint of like she she has really grown to to love this group this group of misfits and i think it's this wonderful moment of of kind of cohesion right before you know things are about to get really really bad yeah absolutely you know we, we look over them and, and we're kind of you know we have that swell of fondness in our breast mm-hmm. that that victoria is feeling you know I, doesn't it say that like sveta and ashley like bump shoulders yeah. which is like kind of sveta's way of showing affection is to knock into people basically so yep. Like that's really heartwarming to see. Um, just overall, it's all it's all very like oh yeah. I mean, and it's so it's so crazy to think about it. Like we look at that scene from Victoria's point of view, and we see this warm, wonderful team um, of people that genuinely care about and are working to make each other better and to help each other and to do good in the world. And you wonder what Annalise, looking at that same scene, is thinking in his head, right? Like like what yeah. is everyone else in this area? They're looking at the same scene that that we that causes our our hearts to warm up. What are they thinking? Right. And it's it's, right. it's going to be vastly different. Yeah. You see Sveta and Ashley like uh, uh, like buddy buddying up and you're like, wow, such a body count. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so then uh, the next thing that happens is Victoria says, you know, thank you, but your teammates weren't wrong. I wasn't in a good place. And then Annalise says, better place now. I shrugged much. So I love this. And I talked about this a little bit in discord because I was so in love with it. Um, You have these two statements, right? You have I shrugged and then you have much. So shrugging is like a noncommittal answer, right? Like it's it's body language that says, uh, uh, (laughs) I I guess. Um, But then you have this this much this like this. Yeah, yes, like this declarative statement, like it has a period at the end of it. It is declarative. Are you doing better? Are you in a better place now? much much better place now um and and it's like the 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 juxtaposition of these two things i think is absolutely wonderful because i do think victoria is probably in a better place than she was when she started but mm-hmm. but also eh? <laughs> like also like she's not better she's in a a relatively better place um but she's not like cured or whatever um like it, it's 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 complicated 
I think the place she was in back when she was interviewing for a cape job was just really bad actually. And, and like we were getting those bits where she would just like have like a half hour long shower because it reminded her that her body was not mutated anymore or or whatever. Like, yeah. Um, and, and now there's not really any of any of that. It's there's, there's still, um, she's she's gotten better at kind of working around a yeah. lot of her issues and i think some of them have become attenuated too like some of them are just they don't throw her off they don't ruin her day um but yeah i mean i i think that along most kind of metrics i would say she is doing much better like i think that's just true but maybe the shrug to me indicates like yeah yeah i mean it's all a relative thing, right? But yeah, I am doing much better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, th- the, the quote that really has stuck in my head throughout all of these conversations is when Ashley talks about Kenzie and says she's doing much better in some ways in others worse as worse as I've ever seen. Um, uh-huh. and, and I think that's just generally true about people on the path to recovery, right? Like re- recovery is not, we've, we've, it's not an on off switch. It's not like, like a, a a linear thing you make improvements in some areas of your life uh and other things you still struggle with and that's just the way it works and i think that's what victoria is going through here yeah no i, I like that a lot yeah i i'll, I'll go with you there yeah. so annalise finally gets around to inviting victoria on a cape date <gasps> uh, or uh violence and chill as they call it i think her uh victoria's first thought is dean um, so although Annalise's approach may be a tad on the inept side, he, he does manage to remain calm and cool as Victoria gives him a hard maybe. Yeah. I, so there's a few things I want to talk about here. The first is Annalise's wonderful, awkwardly bumbling conversation here um, that he he makes his way through. Like, I love it. Um, it's like a naturally awkward conversation. So like, I completely understand why it's, it's difficult to work through. Like he, he asks her out and then right away, he's kind of like brutally honest with her. He's like, look, I need to be honest with you. I know about the asylum. I know some of the stuff that happened to you. I'm aware of this stuff. And I feel like I have to let you know that I know, or I'm just being dishonest with you. And I think there's, there's some credit that needs to be given there, right? Like that he's not like hiding the stuff. He's not going to deal with it later he's being upfront and honest with her and victoria agrees with that too i think it's a very uncomfortable situation for her and she's not sure how to deal with it but i love this quote at the end of this whole interaction where she says it raised my guard and lowered my walls at the same time and i think that's that's complex and great and and it's her dealing with not knowing how to deal with it it's a wonderful piece of writing because it conveys a very relatable psychological movement yeah that I've never seen expressed before. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's like, yeah, I know exactly what that means, but no one has ever described it in history before, as far as I know. <laughs> right. Uh, so, yeah, that's cool. The, so, the other thing I wanted to talk about with you is something that I think we've probably not given enough attention throughout the story. Um, and that is Victoria and Dean, right? Yeah. On top of everything that Victoria is going through the wretch, the hospital, Amy, her mom her regret about everything she did as glory girl along with all of this else we have dean we have this 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 presence her first love that she that her her that she's very very seriously not over his death yet um we have 
just as you said, we have this moment where he says, no pressure. I know capes have hangups. I know we're all busy. I know we're still kind of mourning. And immediately she thinks about Dean immediately. And I was thinking about this a lot. And, and, and I think when you think about her, like her and Dean and think about the things that she's went through, she's gone through. I think this starts to make a lot of sense you know, Dean was her first love and that love was taken from her. He was killed. And in the time one normally mourns for a loved one, um, Victoria didn't have the opportunity to do that. She had to fight. She had to be a cape. She had to go out there. She had to be, you know, doing the hard work. Um, so she had no she had no chance to actually mourn for the death of the person she cared about. And I she probably didn't get a lot of emotional support from her mom either about this whole thing. Like, I can't see Carol, bless her heart, is probably not the best at helping her in this regard. Yeah, I mean, I think it's perfectly fair. Like, we we know that she um, kind of went into a much angrier place after he died. Yeah. Uh, and 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 was there pretty much until she got put in the asylum. Yeah. Um. We know that. We know that like, she was not really able to grieve immediately after it happened, and, and and basically, then all the weird stuff with Amy. Like basically, her 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 love for Dean was sort of overwritten by this this kind of imposed love for Amy, which probably messed up her recovery. And and also we know that like one of the things she she thinks about in the first arc as she's as she's having all of this regret and loss and all these terrible feelings pushed on her by snag is is dean like the memory of his death is one of the yeah. f- like first things that bubbles to the surface yeah yeah and and i think that like that like brings us to you know the the time when she's in the hospital and mm-hmm. you know she's got she's got this this love for amy coming through um, she's got that that's forced on her. And she's also got this idea that her first love, that the, the, the first person she loved because of what happened has now like been by default become her last love. Right. Because like in this state, who's going to love me in, in, in who, as I am now, I'm done with relationships. I'm never going to be close to someone again. It's never going to happen. And so this 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 first love teen relationship has just become the only thing, the only time in my life I will experience reciprocated love. And that puts so much more on it. And then suddenly that changes. Like she had to live in that for two years and and she even says later in the text, like like living like that, having that recurring thought and feeling that I'd be alone for the rest of my life, that default way of thinking about myself and thinking about the possibility of doing anything with anyone were all switched over to that because it had more weight than a hundred years spent like I was living now. So two years of that had more weight than a hundred years living with the potential of other people. So her her brain still hasn't like rewrited to the the idea that she will ever love anyone else but Dean, right? Like mm-hmm. it's it just, it's just not there. And so like the morning, like, and I don't want to take away anything from her. I think she legitimately mourns and, and, and loves this person. But I also think like the idea of Dean has moved beyond just him as a person. And, and is this just this thing, this, this moment in her past that she had kind of written off as the last chance at something. And now that has changed and, and she just hasn't rewrited herself to, the fact that that's not true anymore. Yeah. It's interesting what she says about, you know, a hundred years. Cause it's like, I think 
I, I don't just want to say like that the character is wrong, you know, about their own inner life. But I think everyone who, who has experienced trauma feels like, oh, yeah, well, I'll never get over this. You know, this yeah. this is how this is how I'm going to feel forever. And that's never really true, like about anything in life. Yeah. I mean, whether it's so. whether it's a breakup or a death of a loved one, I think you say I'm never going to get over this uh, up until the day that you find that that maybe you have. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. So, um, interesting bit where, um, he mentions like the reason he knows about the asylum is that he had a friend who was in the asylum Mm -hmm. and, and, and she asks how, how his friend is doing. And he says, gone, long gone, which is a mercy. Sorry. I said, um, I think that I just, this stuck out to me because it's like, not that he has any way of knowing but this doesn't seem like the like an attitude that would fly with any member of Breakthrough. This this idea of like it's a mercy that this person is is gone now. Yeah, I, I agree. They they are, you know, survivors, right? They 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 mm. don't see death as a mercy. They, they like death to this group halts change, halts redemption, halts growth. Like you die, you can't get better anymore, mm. and and that's not what they want. Um, and yeah, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we have later in this chapter, we have Victoria talking about, uh, or not Victoria, we have Ashley talking about how, um, the other version of her is a failure because she's died eight times and I have died zero times, which is an interesting, uh, yeah. <laughs> interesting examination, yeah. like interesting interpretation of that whole there, thing. Yeah. But I mean, that's Ashley framing, right. But I mean, that shows just w- what Ashley's view of death is. Um, and I think that's one that's maybe not quite to the extreme, but one that's shared by the rest of the team. They don't want to just die. They, they want to get better. Yeah. Yeah. I agree that, that they, they probably like, they would all have their own reaction to that. I think like if I simulate my little character simulator of, of them saying like, Oh, it's a mercy that they're gone. They'd be like, you know, it would be better if they weren't got gone, but instead we're, you know, getting better. Yeah. My be- Wouldn't that be better? My best friend. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then as she leaves, she gives him a nice friendly platonic punch in the arm. Oh, ouch. <laughs> yeah. At least she doesn't say, uh, see you later champ yeah i think it's funny that victoria like this is the best she can do so i don't want to like say victoria you jerk like this is the best she can muster in this very awkward uncomfortable situation and i don't think she quite sees it as the 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 full-on rejection that i'm sure he's gonna see it as that i think everyone reading this story was like oh damn um yeah but yeah i mean that's it's pretty rough yeah right yeah yeah it could be worse right yeah, yeah. It, it, it always could be worse but yeah yeah so uh, next, uh, Vicky goes back to her team and Sveta tells her that her and Weld figured out how to squish. Yeah. And there was like a whole Reddit thread about like what the specifics of that whole thing were. And yeah, it was I, very graphic. And I think I can sum up my feelings on this in in a couple short sentences, which is Victoria asks, how? How did you finish that? How did you work that out? And uh, and. Sveta just smiles and, and moves along, and that's what we should all do. <laughs> just just <laughs> smile and move along. I think the importance of the situation is Sveta was very stressed and nervous about this interaction and how it was going to go and how happy they would both be, and she's she's worked it out. They're happy. That's all that matters. The specifics yep. of what was going on in that bedroom, not important. I agree. 
but you know, you could still go check out that Reddit thread. They got some really interesting speculation there. Anyway, I can't believe you read. I, um, I, I opened it up and I said, nope. Uh, actually, I opened it up. I started reading it and then I was like, oh, we were really going there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm going to gonna uh, maybe check this out later. Maybe just not check this out, actually. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, there were some weird the, threads this week. That and the how does Ashley wipe her butt or how does uh, how does Damsel wipe her butt after she poops was a uh, some wonderful imaginative thinking. Yeah, people are really thinking deeply about these stories. <laughs> um, yeah, so Victoria is really happy to see how happy Sveta is. She kind of looks over and thinks over the whole team and how she knows when they're happy, which reminds us how how well she knows these people, how well we know these people how this group has gone from those guys I'm kind of doing part-time pro bono hero coaching for to my teammates. Uh, to quote Josriel from our Discord, I've been lulled. <laughs> yeah, and that, Matt, is exactly what Wildbo is doing here. She just had this very awkward encounter with this guy who liked her and who's genuinely worried about her. And then uh, he talks about how the people we surround ourselves with are important. And she says, yes, I agree. And I... I love these people. I'm happy with these people. She cries here. She sees how happy Sveta is and she cries. And we get that beautiful like, oh, so you're a crier now? And it's no, it's just like the 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 beauty of this moment to her. And these people aren't better, right? Like, I mean, they're, they're still working through their shit. They still got stuff going on. But in this moment, they are together. All of them are to Well, uh, Chris, they're mostly all together um, and they're in a relatively good place. Which means it's time to it's time to take her to take them to the bad place. Yep, it's time for the swerve into the ditch. <laughs> so look out, uh, not quite though. So look out struggles with your time camera and realizes that she probably won't be able to get any good images because this is twisting of space time uh, back when they first looked at the crime scene has irreversibly messed up the camera's ability to extrapolate what positions the particles were in back in time. <laughs> Um, uh, so yeah. <laughs> I actually think like this is probably one of the greatest comedic beats I've seen in this book so far. I, I, mm -hmm. I, I love it. Like the, like we have here, Kenzie working on recreating one of the most grisly murder scenes in the story so far. And we're juxtaposing that with just her ridiculous behavior here. And it's so funny. Like, yeah. like, she, Victoria says casually, that's got to be Vista. Look out, turned slowly, then stared up at me. She turned back to the screen, brought her head back and swung it at the flat face of the cube. It's just like this, this like slow, like you can imagine like the slow head turn with just like the, 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 are you fucking kidding me? Look, it's, it's so wonderful. And it's juxtaposed with this horribleness. And like, you find yourself laughing, even though in the background, you kind of know there's more horrible stuff underneath it. And I think that's like the feeling you get throughout this whole part of the thing where like you're, you're warm, you're fuzzy, you're laughing, you're happy for these characters, but like, you know, you know, there's something nagging and pulling at you underneath it all. You know it on some level, even if not consciously. Yeah. I mean, on a certain level, it reminds me a little bit of the heartbroken where it's like, especially back in the interlude at the end of worm, where it's like, Oh, this is funny, but also, a fate worse than death lurks just under the surface. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so this, this, uh, comedy beat then leads into a delightful interaction where Swan song tries to coach Kenzie to not show signs of her frustration. <laughs> and then Kenzie points out that Ashley has been known to rant, 
prompting Ashley to rant about how <laughs> her clone messed up her tea. Um, f- for example, Slashley has died eight times, but Swan Song hasn't died at all, as we said. It's so delightful. I love it. It's like, what yeah. are you talking about? You rant all the time. When have I ranted? This morning about the tea. Well, that yeah. was different because. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. I think another great comedy moment for me was was when, uh, you know, Victoria deadpan something about not giving her clone any more treats <laughs> and Ashley like points at her and says you'll see who gets no treats <laughs> like I could just like absolutely hear that in Ashley's voice in my brain yeah and th- I mean this conversation is continuing and then Victoria just kind of says am I all right leaving you guys alone <laughs> and they're like yes but in the back of your head you're like no <laughs> <laughs> never leave them alone never yeah yeah. Um, and I think it's it's so like, again, we have these these comedy beats, this this lulled false sense of security. But underneath it, like we're talking about death here, like she's died eight times. I've died zero times. So death is in the back of your mind. Like uh, uh, like every time we do a comedy beat, we have something kind of disturbing and uncomfortable right under the surface. And then I think is reinforcing this idea of unease, just this general unease. Yeah, I mean. I wish I could say that I felt unease. I think I was just like completely hypnotized into like, a, like, oh, what a lovely story moment, which I really should know better by now. Yeah. Like, seriously. I mean, I was convinced that Sveta was dead. And uh-huh. I mean, I think I think it's kind of designed that way. Like you have like yeah. you have a character who's like achieved like the happy. Like, I think she says specifically the happiest I've ever seen her. And it's like, oh, this is the perfect perfect spot to cut her down and it's not that the book doesn't cut her down it just cuts her down in a different way than i thought it was going to um and so i i I definitely read this with with like i was enjoying the moments i was enjoying the comedy i was enjoying the writing but i felt i felt like we were being pushed somewhere and i and i kind of felt like the book wants you to know that you're being pushed somewhere like I, i like i don't think it's like sneakily like making you happy just to undercut you i think it's like it's doing both at the same time it's pulling out your heartstrings while pulling out your um scared strings yeah right i think that's the trick that's the trick is that like you know intellectually that bad things are going to happen because it's a book right but like in this in this moment it takes just enough time that you lower your defenses um just enough i think for me anyway and and i I kind of try to read in such a way where i'm just just in it you know i'm i'm i don't like to be too kind of at arm's length when i'm reading like the first time through obviously i have to be at arm's length when i'm analyzing it later but like the first time through i i was i was lulled successfully Mm -hmm. um so Victoria then touches base with Brio just as the whole exposed hero cadre comes under fire from the highway. Several capes are hit or pinned down immediately, and Victoria takes to the sky and prepares to smash. And I think the reason why this works so well is because I think we were both simultaneously, as you were saying, lulled into this false sense of security while also waiting for something to happen. Right. So like we have these like two opposing forces on us and they smash into each other with the crack of a gunshot. And I think it's just this perfectly wonderful moment of 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 clear tonal shift where we go from from warm, fuzzy to oh, no horror. We don't even know what's going on. Like Victoria immediately takes to the sky um, and then gets hit. So she has to 
to dive down again so she doesn't get an aerial view right away. Um, we just know that probably some of the members of her team are hurt and and we know and we get this very ominous end of the chapter where she's like the there will be no more of our blood spilled here today yeah Um, wrong 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 yeah it was very like intimidatingly done because she gets hit um what like once or twice and and she's like a she's like a moving target with her force field so you're immediately thinking like if if whoever's firing is able to hit her then surely they're able to hit other people who are who are you know earthbound, um, mm-hmm. and and so like your my assumption leaving that chapter was like multiple multiple breakthrough members are are hit, which actually turns out to be true, um, although they may not have been hit yet at this point. So yeah, um, yeah, I, I like how like the severity of the attack is conveyed in kind of this indirect way. Sure, it, yeah. Like she, she doesn't look down and say like ten out of fifteen people were down. Like it's it's not quantitative. Yeah. It's, kind of just yeah cool. and it's because like her her bird's eye view is kind of temporarily taken away from her yeah. and then and then i mean i don't know if it's in this chapter or not so i might be jumping ahead but i love the moment where she jumps up like she 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 flies up to get a bird's eye view gets hit has to dive down again hits the fence grabs the two fence pieces of fence and like i think it's at the very end of this chapter she di- she jumps into the air and flies into the air again and says bullets are whizzing around her as she flies up and she just doesn't care like this, mm-hmm. this really moment of I don't give a shit anymore. Um, I'm pissed off and I'm going to take out these guys. And it's 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 wonderful to getting into her frame of mind as we move into this this fight. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so 10.3. Uh, no, 10.13. <laughs> Those are different numbers. Uh, so this is a combat chapter, but it's got a different tone, I think, than anything we've really seen in Parahumans up to this point. Because, like, there were guns. There have been guns before in this story. There were guns in the Fallen battle. There were there were a lot of guns there. But that was, like, a big cape battle, and there were some people with guns present. And Victoria got shot, and that was shocking. But she was, like, practically the only person who got shot. Um, this is a heavily armed and armored ambush, primarily using firearms on unprepared capes. Yeah. It just feels very different. It does, especially for a hero fight, right? Like this, this is not about winning anymore. This isn't about stopping the bad guys from doing the crime. This is just about surviving. This is just about getting through this, getting to the end of this. And as we go through this chapter, as we talk about it, like the heroes, quote unquote, win in that they're not all dead. But like, right. but we'll see throughout the chapter that like failure point after failure point occurs for all of our characters. Like we're seeing people hurt. We're seeing people fail, at least in their perspective, fail. And it just kind of happens again and again and again. And it's 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 rough. Yeah. And, and heroes do die, which yeah. is, you know, I don't remember how often that's happened so far in the story not, on the good guy side. Not, very, but not often. No. Yeah. Uh Yeah. So Victoria takes the two wooden planks that she's grabbed and she drops them from the sky, then swings around and attacks when the impacts of the planks provide a distraction. She keeps her aura off as she beats the fuck out of people with her fists, occasionally using flickers of her super strength to throw or smash people. So I think there's a whole lot to love about this. The the things that I love is kind of like you're very confused as to what the hell she's doing at first, Um, because like. She jumps up into the sky and she like braces her face and drops the wretch. And you're like, 
What are you doing? It's cold up there. Why? Like, protect yourself from the cold. There's not anyone around that can get hurt by the wretch. Why don't you just drop it like mid dive instead of dropping it right now? And then you learn later that she's doing this for a specific reason. She's building up ice and and whiteness on her costume to kind of help her blend in a little bit. And then you're like, why are you carrying these pieces of wood with you? That doesn't make any sense. What are you doing? And then she drops them as a distraction. Um, it's it's all very like planned and controlled. And we had the, the end of this chapter. The last chapter ends with her like pissed off flying into the sky like she doesn't give a shit about the gunfire going off. We have all these moments that would would lead you to believe she's going to go on a rampage. And and she does like kind of go like berserk at she's just like kicking and punching the shit out of people. And like, she's, she's really brutal, but it is all like, it is, it is a kind of controlled focused warrior monk esque brutality, right? Like even when she uses the wretch, she's like thinking about how controlled it is, how like, I know it unfurls out slowly. So if I just turn it on real quick for a quick, quick bing of super strength, I can get it out. Like it all is, as as angry as she is, it is all very coordinated, controlled, handled um, kind of chaos. And I think that's right. not something I expected going into the chapter. And that's why I kind of like you're like you're the text almost like can intentionally confuses you at first. Like, why? Why? Why are you doing that? Oh, OK, I get it. Huh. OK, so you're, you're yeah. doing all right right now. Yeah, you see she has this fairly nuanced strategic plan. And, and even when things aren't going her way, she's able to almost channel the anger she's feeling into like a cold focus that helps her solve the problems, yeah. um, which we, we see a few times. Yeah. Right up, right um, up until it, uh, it doesn't. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, so yeah, like she's, she's, she's attacking, uh, when she finally does use her aura, she gets an unusual reaction, not like the one we've seen so far in the story. Um, and I like how like the, the fact of this new reaction is kind of gradually revealed to us over the course of this chapter and, and what it might mean. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do too. It, it's one of those kind of chapter long mysteries and like the, the mystery is not solved by the end of the chapter. Like we know that there's something affecting these people um, and it's causing her or to behave funnily on them. We don't know who it is, but we like, I like how the, it doesn't hold that part of the mystery, right? Like it's, it's not like, we we don't always have to set something up and then just leave it dangling there. We can we can give you some of the resolution. I think it helps you kind of understand what's going on a little better. If we had like left this as an unknown, I would just be like, well, what's that? What's that for? Yeah, right. Or it would just be like uh, you, you wouldn't even like think to wonder about right, it. You right. know? Yeah. So, yeah, like like you said, she's she's a brawler here. She's punching. She's elbowing. She's smacking people with their own weapons it's like very visceral fighting even though she's being very tactical about it she's she's being brutal uh and then when the enemy capes catch notice of her um there's a there's a creepy creepy girl and a guy with a non-flaming axe um and uh the the axe is is just like really intimidating to me just just in case there's any confusion out here we don't call it a fire axe it is the kind of emergency kind of axe emergency workers use to chop through doors um this seems like totally unnecessary though matt i mean like what kind of person wouldn't know what a fire axe is yeah i don't know um 
I, I, I'm just completely blanking on this one. The kind emergency workers. I laughed out loud when I said that. The kind <laughs> emergency workers used to chop through doors. I wonder if it was like red <laughs> and... <laughs> I wonder um, if there's anyone yeah. that hasn't that joined us in Ward that doesn't understand that reference because they haven't gone back and listened to We've yeah. Got Worm. Well, good luck figuring I'd, it out. Okay. Um, so she decides that she'll try to avoid um, the power that the that the uh, bad guys might have. She doesn't know what it is, but she's going to just basically be like, well, Manton Limit's always kind of safe <laughs> to, to, to rely on, so... As I like approach them, I'm going to approach through the mass of unpowered attackers. So she just kind of like wades through human them. shields. Yay. Bad yeah. guy, human shields. Not, not a, again, very tactical, right? Like it, it is, it is interesting here that like it's, it's controlled chaos. Like you're absolutely right. I don't want to undersell like how brutal and, and like she is a brawler. She's like beating the shit out of people. Like she's like using her strength to, to rip assault rifles and break them and then beat people on the head with them. Um, but, but yeah, it is in a very tactical kind of way. Yeah. Until this moment, which, you know, it's kind of not her fault where she accidentally destroys the arm of one of these unpowered dudes, which kind of twists it till it shatters. And she instantly feels in, in her words, like 10 times worse than any of the like tenuous good she might've felt about her like success and control. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's like, she's you're kind of riding the line right like she this this very controlled kind of chaos where you're riding the line of of uncontrol and she just like the thing about the wretch is you slip up for half a second and that's all it takes and that's just what happens it's just like and and the thing that i love about this um there's there's nothing like particularly bad about this compared to what she's been doing to other people i mean she's been smashing dudes in the face she breaks a dude's jaw um yeah she she hurts a guy's arm but like they're bad guys with guns yeah yeah i mean that's that was that stuck out to me too because i'm like yeah i mean put that in a cast he's not gonna die probably right, right. but but so, it's, it, the important part is not the damage right it's not that she did damage to this guy it's that it was damage that she didn't want to do it was a law it was a temporarily law temporarily loss of control and that is the part that she can't deal with right and it was the wretch that did yeah. it right yeah. yeah so i mean i get it i yeah. get it it's just like you know when, when you're when you're being objective which of course she isn't being objective and that's the whole point you're, you're like you know it, it's a uh, you're fighting for your life yeah. here it's, it's, but so. but this is doing important setup work too matt and this is wonderful in the moment it's it's it's, it's a, a character beat for victoria here but we're also moving towards um sveta doing a similar thing in a similar situation um with with a similar kind of objective understanding behind it um and she's going to react in a similar way that victoria does so we're kind of laying the groundwork for that kind of emotional thought process yeah yeah i think you're exactly right you're we're being primed yeah uh so the woman uses her power which kind of knocks victoria out for a second and kind of stuns her i guess and before she can get her footing, the man with the axe catches her in his arena. Thunderdome! I just adore the otherworldliness of the description. Yeah. It's, it says, a ring 30 feet in diameter, and past those 30 feet there was nothing. Some of the cars and trucks had been cut apart, but the pieces still stood. Not white, not black, not gray, or anything neutral. It made my head, head hurt to look at it and to think about it. 
I panted for breath, feeling the lingering weakness from the woman's power, and I could tell that the air here was thinner. I'd experienced thinner air by flying especially high. So, like, I don't know. There's something about, like, the colors, and it's just, it's just like a creepy... Um, I don't. I can't really explain why. You know, it's one. It's just one of those things where, where you're just a few a few sentences of description really strikes you, and you just kind of sit back and like imagine that and think about. Yeah, because that. it's one of those things that doesn't exist, right? Like there is no situation in which we will be in a space where beyond the space is nothing. Like like mm-hmm. not not just vacuum, not just absence, but literally nothing. And I love the the economy of making that explanation like like not white not black not gray or anything neutral that sentence alone kind of gets you there but the 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 next sentence it made my head hurt to look at and think about it like like it's 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 something that is indescribable to to yeah. our brains because it's, yeah, it's, it's nothing like nothing well what's nothing right what does nothing it's look like? it's it's like outside of the human experience. Right. I mean, it's weird because like this this description reminded me of like how I felt when I read like um like like one of the Narnia books <laughs> when I was like seven years old or something, where it's just like kind of like I, I realize the comparison is strange, but but I'm talking about like the feeling of otherworldliness. I get um, what you mean. Which yeah, cool. Uh so she chats a bit with Arena Man. Uh, and we kind of learn a little bit about him. He confesses to having been in Russia, worked as a mercenary, uh, learn just enough about him to make you curious about him. Yeah. And, and I love Victoria's like trying to subtly manipulate him. She's like, you know, these non pair, these like non capes that hired you don't know what they're talking about. And he's like, no, I, I know you're trying to get me to, to reveal yeah. who hired me. It's not going to work. And she really does get nothing from this guy other, other than that they were paid mercenaries. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's a it's fascinating to think about this guy and his whole his whole approach because I don't know. Let's let's, let's get into this because basically Victoria tactically assesses the battlefield and the guy's power, and she realizes that she feels better than she did before because now she's not being affected by Rain's power anymore, which leads her to realize how much it was affecting her thinking before. Yeah, and it's kind of crazy how much we've just kind of uh, forgot about rain's emotional power like i don't think you or i have mentioned it in a long time and i think that's because the story really hasn't either it's kind of just been the thing that we probably all knew about but just haven't been thinking about um yeah this 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 almost confused me though because we have this like and and you and i talked earlier today about like kind of working through the thought process here where we have this we have this weird thing happening when she uses her aura and then we have this moment where she messes up and it it she really like really sells how bad it makes her feel that she messes up. Like she says 10 times worse than any positive. And then we're in here and it's like, Oh, it was rain's power making me do that. It was rain's power. That was like accentuating my failure. Um, and that makes sense. Right. But I I don't like, I, I guess the explanation is that like, it doesn't make rain's power. Doesn't make you feel things. It just, you feel the things that you were feeling more. Yeah, I'm not. I mean, isn't his power like doubt, basically? Yeah. yeah. So, so you can see doubt like coming into effect, where it's like self doubt, where where any mistake you make, you're like, oh, I I messed up because it was my mm-hmm. fault. Like that's that, that I read it as that kind of right, doubt that right. she's feeling, basically. Yeah. So. Yeah, but then I mean, um, and then she wonders if 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 the reason why the 
the her aura was working weird as a combination with his. And we kind mm-hmm. of learn later that no, not necessarily like that's not necessarily what was going on. There's just like a lot of kind of like balls being tossed into the air in this moment of, of things we're not quite sure. Like, I think there's a very specific reason we're reminding the readers of Rain's power that Rain's power exists in this moment. And it's not just to emphasize Victoria's self-doubt in this one moment. Like, I think it's doing mm-hmm. more than just that. So uh, there's there's a whole lot of stuff being kind of teased here. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I think you and I had slightly different takeaways from the chapter. Like, I, I think I, I thought like... um. I thought that it was her power interacting with Rain's power that was causing the um, the um, attackers to react strangely, and then and then I thought that when she was uh, saying, "Well, maybe they're under some kind of compulsion, and I'm interfering with that," I thought that was maybe like not correct. But um, there's not really. I think it could be either one just as easily. Yeah. So. Yeah. So. Victoria uh, bull rushes the dude with the axe, and it's this pretty awesome brawl. Like the physical description here is really excellent, I think, because it's it's like this. They're they're in close quarters, hitting and punching, and 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 they're 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 almost every impact is like um, not it's not there's no like clean punches, you know. It's all like a scuffle and scrabble yeah. and using her her hooks to like hook into his clothes so she can like move around and try to kick him in the face. And, 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 uh, I just think it's this amazingly, um, amazingly well-written, uh, for something that's actually pretty difficult to describe and extremely tense. And, and also you're just like really impressed with her on top of all yeah, that. Yeah. I mean, it's the kind of fighting we don't see in this story very often. Right. I mean, that's like, yeah. Normally our characters have powers and they're using their powers in creative ways against each other. And and when they are fighting hand to hand, when they are fighting physically, it's it's enhanced in some way by their power. And that's not this. This is just two people beating the shit out of each other. Um, and it, it is as visceral and mundane and and brutal as that is in real life. Um, I, I love the text uses the word scramble a few times throughout this fight, like the, the Victoria's scrambling over like, and, and I think that really sells the dif- the difference in this kind of fighting. It's not graceful. It's not clean. It, it, it is rough. It is messy. It is, it is fighting. It is real fighting. And, and, and these are characters that like, they're not holding back, right? Like there's, there's always like a, a little bit of assumed hold back when capes are fighting. Cause like even, even in the moment where Victoria is like surrounded by people grabbing her, um, like she could just bring out the wretch and get the fuck out of there. But, but she's, but she's not going to do that. Um, but here, like they're going full tilt into each other. Like they're both trying as hard as they can. Um, and you just don't see that very often. Yeah. I mean, and they're trying to kill each other, like her with her bare hands, him with an ax, which is pretty, pretty damn visceral. And also there's a moment here that I loved where she admits that like in all the brutal fighting she's been doing so far, she's been intentionally aiming for people's faces so that they can't like hide in public anymore. Like if she looks around and sees a bunch of dudes with broken faces, she's going to be like, hey, I broke that face. You must be that guy, (laughs) which is again like uh, tactical. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Uh, so as they're fighting, she gets smacked in the side of the head with the axe and she's like bleeding pretty heavily from her scalp. But then she does a Tyler Durden and she just like bleeds into the guy's mask eye hole while she tears at his gas mask. 
Um, and this is enough to win the fight, apparently, and the guy retreats. Yeah, and, and to, to kind of circle back to what you were just talking about, I think this is one of the first moments in this fight and in the story where we have Victoria really, like, honestly come clean about just how mad she is about everything. Like, at this moment, anger drove me. The image of all those people lying on the blood-stained battlefield and what had happened to the navigators were flashing through my head as I fought for what I what it took to keep going, keep hurting him. And it's, it's just, it's just wonderful that like, like this is like, she can go full tilt because for the first time she doesn't have to worry about losing control. She doesn't have to worry about going too far. Like, like the moment where she gets into this bubble, she says, Oh, I feel better because rain's influence is not over me anymore. And I think there's probably some truth to that, but, but don't you think there's some truth to this idea that, for the next five minutes, I don't have any superpowers and I don't have the the burden yeah. of those powers and what they mean psychologically and physically and mentally on me. They're just not there anymore. And there's like, even if like in a day of being that way, she might miss them in that, in that brief moment, like that's, that's a burden lifted off of you. Yeah. Right. I, I think that, um, she even kind of thinks about explicitly like I felt surprisingly okay and and like you detect a certain kind of of like relief and um, I don't and I don't want to just like write that off as oh Rain's emotion power was gone like I don't I don't I don't want to just make it a simple like power trick that that's why she's feeling relief in this moment I think it's more complicated than that yeah yeah so um the the bubble is released. Victoria is back on the battlefield, and Sveta has to immediately save Victoria from being crushed by a car driven by Noontide, the uh, the woman cape. This is a it's a pretty small, quick moment, but again, I think what we're doing um, is is setting things up for the decision Sveta makes here in a couple minutes. Um, Noontide would have killed Victoria in this moment. She would have struck her with a vehicle and probably killed her. Uh, Sveta just saved her life from a person that was going to try to kill her. This is important. Yeah. Interesting though, that Victoria, that Sveta may not realize that Victoria was, uh, incapable of using her force field. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Cause, um, Victoria knows that Sveta saved her life, but Sveta may not know that. Uh, I I like this moment. Annalise brought gun, brought knives to a gunfight and he was winning. Um, man, I hope this guy is not secretly operator red. Why would you put that in my head? What? I'm so mad at you. I like him. St- stop it. Oh, you know, just, just planting seeds. Uh, we also learned that Brio got clipped by a rocket and the time camera is destroyed. Yeah, I liked him too. The, the ninja pirate with all the belts. Yeah, yeah poor, poor Brio. Poor man. Poor, poor I also wonder if pirate. the time camera being destroyed it was just like a practical like... Um, this thing's really powerful. <laughs> it's really hard to write around this thing. Let's just get rid of that for a little bit. Yeah, I know how that is. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, it definitely like, I mean, okay. By the end of this chapter, like, like every, every advantage Kenzie gave them is like out of the picture yeah, now. Sort including of Kenzie herself. Yeah. Right. Um, so Victoria intercepts, uh, and tanks a shot from the rocket launcher, (laughs) which is quite a choice. Yeah. And and then after this badass moment of tanking a rocket shot, she hits them with her new twisted aura, which, which seems to make them almost like her thralls. Yeah, kind of. I mean, like we said, there's something weird going on here and, and 
whatever her aura is combining with is messing with them. Like, I don't think it controls them so much as like just makes them stand down. Like she says in this moment that like they're odd and like her, her aura has reversed what it should normally do. Like at first she's like, is my aura just like in bizarre world now? And it's like, no, it's just in this situation. It's just these people. Um, and I guess you, you're convinced that this is just, you know, combined with rain's power type of thing. Uh, I don't know. I, I I want I want some follow up on this. Like I want her to ask her teammates. Like, hey, what were you feeling when I was using my aura back yeah, there? That's interesting. Yeah, we we do learn they dish a little bit though. We learn that they're called Spear Team Two, which of course implies that there is a Spear Team One, and this is not the only attack that's going on tonight. So that's that's great. True. It's great. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and then the Arena Man traps Annalise in his bubble. Um, and loses to him too, even though Annalise doesn't have his knife power. Yeah, but he still's got his knives. Still got his knives. Okay, but Matt, doesn't Annalise not have eyes? <laughs> so well, maybe he takes. So them yeah, off. like I, I mean, know. he doesn't. The assumption here is that his thinker power like allows him, like he doesn't need to see because he has his thinker power, right? That's what I was right. assuming. So he goes into a, a power nullifying bubble, and I guess he takes his mask off. But the text doesn't like specify that afterwards he's like not wearing his mask or or maybe he just put it again in the moments as the bubble. See, you got me down the road with this guy with your stupid operator red thing. And now I'm like, what if he was in the bubble just like talking to his mercenary friend and just like faking injury because he's doing some long. What did you do to me? This is all your fault. Yeah. You see him slip a piece of chocolate (laughs) under his mask. Yeah. I'm so happy. I'm, I'm done so this. mad at you. But so, yes, no, go ahead. I'm just, I'm just mad. This is, let's just move okay. on. Okay. Okay. So Sveta undoes one of her clasps around her neck thing uh, to defend herself and the team uh, as Noontide approaches. Noontide gets too close and uh, gets her head squished. Victoria tries to reassure her friend that Noontide had it coming and Sveta settles down, but we don't really get the sense that she's okay with it. Yeah. Yeah, so I, we got to talk about this for a bit because this is important. This yeah. is really important. Um, and one of the things is I think I think sometimes in parahumans discussions in general and then on this show specifically, we kind of get bogged down in the like uh, the morality of the choice, right? Like like was like the idea of was Sveta correct in using lethal force here and let's determine whether she was right or not. Um, I don't think it's relevant here. I don't think it matters. Um my short answer is, yeah, I mean, I think so. Someone's trying to kill you. Um, they're using lethal yeah. force on you. Like legally, you're allowed to reciprocate with lethal force. That's fine. Um, yeah. And yeah, but uh, yeah, but it doesn't yeah. matter. Like it's, it's not, it, it's, it's almost irrelevant because what matters is what Sveta thinks. Like just, just as when Victoria ripped the arm off the dude um, and, and instantly felt bad about it, even though she was probably, completely correct in in using that type of force against the person that's trying to kill her um sveta just killed someone and and importantly like i love the distinction here like i made the choice victoria i undid the clasp like throughout this arc you and i were kind of talking about and and waiting for this moment where like sveta's contamination like her her containment rather her her body failed and she got out and and getting out caused her to hurt someone um we were like this is going to happen we were white knuckling our way through it we were really nervous about something but this is so much more interesting of a narrative decision to me 
It isn't that she lost control. It isn't that she accidentally killed someone. She made the choice. She undid the clasp. She chose to do that. And now she's forced to live with that choice. And and as you said, I, I don't I don't see her taking this very well. Yeah, I agree that that like having this happen in the most justifiable possible circumstance mm-hmm. was was like the, the most perfect way to do this, because now the conversation isn't like, well, was she justified? It's like, no, she was she was as justified as you can get. They were they were just a bunch of people investigating a crime scene and they were ambushed. Yeah with lethal force it's it's like there's never been a more cut and dried example of violence in parahumans universe <laughs> stories uh, like i'm i think i'm i think that i'm serious about that actually i, I don't I, I don't think you're wrong yeah yeah and, and and so like exactly right that it's like yeah but the the point is that this is her whole thing right. is this is her whole thing so no matter how justified it is she's not gonna let herself go and that's <laughs> We think back to that line that started this arc. It's hard to know where to draw the line sometime. And our mm-hmm. reading of this in the moment was, I think, the natural reading you have where, where you talk about what people talk about drawing the line. What they're really most often saying is saying, I don't know when I do a thing, if that thing was crossing the line or not. Like, I, like I, I went too far, basically. But the other reading of this thing is, I don't know where to draw the line to say the thing that I did was actually on this side of the line, that, that this was okay, that I, that this, I needed to do this, that this was necessary. Um, I don't know when to draw that line past the thing I did. And I love that, like the, the, the kind of duality of that whole thing that like, she doesn't know where to draw the line and say a thing's too far, but she doesn't know where to draw the line to say a thing is okay. It's okay. It sucks. It's, it's shitty that you have to do it. Um, but, but sometimes, sometimes it's just okay. It's, and that's, that's terrifying for her. Um, it is, it is so concerning. Like she's at this, this, this moment, this high moment where she's figured some stuff out, like the things that were really bothering her, the things that she was really worried about seems to have seemed to have been dealt with. And now you have this and it's, it's going to be bad. <laughs> yeah. Right. I, I like what you said about it. Paralleling Victoria's situation. Cause like she saved Victoria. She's, she's like really very useful in this fight because she seems pretty robust against the attack and she has a lot of mobility. Mm-hmm. So she's like, she's making a lot of important plays and, and, and helping their side, you know, survive better. And she's still going to completely beat herself up about oh, yeah. this. Like, like, the only like the only path that I don't see this just being absolutely terrible is that the two the two women can like connect over this and and talk to each other about it, right? Because like the worst possible thing doesn't always happen in parahuman stories. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sometimes the fact that we've established this human connection can be the support that they need, and they actually rely on it. And it's hard, but they're able to get That's there. That's true. Yeah. But uh, we'll have to see. So, so sorry. There's one more interesting thing I wanted to say about this because the second this happens, um, Victoria is like immediately in comfort mode, right? She's like immediately like, no, it was okay. Like you needed to do it. I completely understand. But I love in the moment before we have this. I saw Sveta's neck thicken, unfurl. A clasp had been undone. Shorter tendrils reached out and seized Noontide's face and arm. 
don't I called like like in this moment before it happens she's she's like no don't don't do that and and I don't think this is Victoria saying killing is wrong right like like don't kill I think this is Victoria in this moment knowing somewhere in her deep in her soul that Sveta is going to destroy herself over this choice and not wanting her to have to make it. And I mean, I think, I think Victoria is a type of person who would make this choice. Like, like if, if this person needed to be killed, I feel like Victoria would do it over Sveta. Right. Like, I, I think that would happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I agree with your take entirely there. Um, so, so the, uh, the hidden teleporter with the group of attackers kind of just poofs everybody away except for himself. Um, and then crystal clear takes him Poor down. Guy. <laughs> yeah. And then that guy tries to take a suicide pill after he's captured, which I guess really kind of indicates some kind of thraldom, yeah. right? Like m- people don't usually do that if they're like mercenaries. Yeah, I mean, which makes you so. like which makes you think teacher, right? But I, I mean, like we kind of get the text kind of point us away from that, that, that we yeah. don't really assume it's teacher. Yeah. There's a lot of things that are making, I mean, first of all, they're not really using the tinker right, weapons right. that are usually associated with him. It just doesn't seem to be the kind of compulsion that he uses either. Like they're able to talk, they're able to like snap out of it when she uses the aura. Yeah. So, so in the aftermath of the battle, uh, finale is freaking out because her teammates <sighs> are injured uh, Brio is dead. Yeah, I love, I I love this the scene setting here. Finale's whale formed the bulk of the background noise. Um, so like throughout all this is going, Finale is just screaming, uh, because her 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 team's hurt. Like she just, and it's like Victoria was worried about Finale's ability to see the carnage that was done, um, on the time camera about the three capes that died that's what she was worried about and now finale has seen carnage on a level that she's never seen before that like like we said this is something different than the fighting in these in these stories this is something else and this poor girl is not emotionally equipped to deal with it at all mm-hmm. yeah yep um so we also learned that Tristan, Ashley, and Kenzie have all taken hits as well, which is like this information is revealed to us in the most crushing possible way. Yeah, Ashley's bleeding from the neck, I think it is. Um, I think so. And and she doesn't even trust herself to be around Kenzie at this moment. That's what she says. She's like, I don't want to get too close. Um, it's that's really that's really awful. Like it's really awful that she feels that way in this moment. That like. Like, I'm sure she feels like Kenzie got hit and therefore I failed her. Like, I'm sure that's what she's feeling in this moment. I failed to protect her. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's awful. And Tristan is hit and in stasis inside Byron, which is probably nightmare inducing because like you don't know. It's probably got to be terrifying because you don't. Like, what if I die in here? Right. Like what 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 happens? Right. Like, I think like they're, Byron's like, I think he's going to be OK until we get him to a hospital. But they don't know this is kind of uncharted territory for them. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's, it's actually a pretty cool, you know, side benefit of their ability if it happens to work yeah. that way. But yeah, it's gotta be nerve wracking. And of course, Kenzie, Kenzie hit by two bullets. 
Yeah, and the way that's the way that's doled out, it's it's not like she, you know, she approaches the group, she sees Ashley, and then it's it's almost like she already knows yeah. Kenzie is is this injured, but but it only is revealed to us as she like rounds the corner and sees her. And and it, 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 I don't even think it's revealed until Kenzie says out loud like, "How did I get hit twice?" Yeah, it's not. And I, when I'm such a small target. I mean, you can tell by the way everyone's acting, but yeah, it is it is like the structure of that reveal. I think is is really helps it hit home. Yeah, yeah, and just yeah, yeah, it's just so sad. Yeah, the, I mean, the imagery of her picking up this little tiny girl that's like barely hanging on and like she scoops her up and flies her to the hospital and she kind of turns herself so that the wind is not hitting is not hitting yeah. Kenzie. It's just this beautifully sad moment of defeat. Like the, these are defeated changed people. Like they, they will not be the same anymore. Yeah. Right. And, and the, the, um, the section, you know, ends with, Things had changed from a city of gold to a city of crimson. I love that. I love that as this like fundamentally recognized watershed moment of the story where where, where things are not going to be the same anymore, where the the illusions of um, things getting better um, are put on hold now. And we're, we got to deal with this. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how much to read into the, like the fact that Victoria's inner monologue kind of uses the word thing in a way that's fairly flexible and sometimes humorous, like fucking why was this a thing? And, you know, this is the way things are now mm -hmm. being an important, an important kind of bit of character defining, um, you know, uh, character conflict defining a uh, story moment. Yeah. And now it's like, yeah, things, things, things had changed. Yeah. Past tense. It's different now. It's, it's we, we can't go back. Right. Yeah. Like I, I, I love that. I love the, the, the catch of the the past tense there that's like there's nothing you can do about it anymore it, the, the change has mm -hmm. happened it is in the past now we have to live with it um like the, it, yep. it is fundamentally different from that this is the way things are now statement um it, which mm -hmm. which is something she resisted strongly she's like no i don't accept that no i'm not gonna let that happen um this is you can't stop it it's changed it's that ch mm -hmm. the, now now you got to figure out what to do next yeah yeah. So we, we, we break from that and it's, it's later. We don't know how much later exactly, but Victoria goes and has a chat with dragon. Um, basically dragons transferring all the PRT files to breakthrough, like, uh, like citrine kind of ordered them mm -hmm. to. So like some time has passed. Apparently there's been like multiple surgeries yeah. already on, on lookout. Yeah. So I don't really know. If it's if does that imply a few days or you could conceivably have multiple surgeries in a short span of time, though? So, yeah, I, I mean, really it could know. be a few hours. It could be a, a full day. We don't know. Um, I, I don't get yeah. the idea that like a super long amount of time has passed. Like, I would be surprised if it yeah. was more than more than a day. Yeah, that sounds reasonable to me. Um, yeah, I, I mean, that it kind of has to be based on the timeline, but I guess I don't want to get too far into the weeds mm -hmm. there. Uh, so. I just like this. I mean, this is a bit comedy to to break us out of our little sad tone. Um, Victoria says, I'm too used to look out because my first impulse is to be surprised that you didn't uh, look it up on hospital computers first. Admitting that sort of thing gets you in trouble, Dragon said over the phone that I'd set to speaker. I asked because I wanted to hear it from you. So, like, in other words, I did already yeah. know that. Because... Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. Yeah, that's and that's a funny. lesson that poor Kenzie still hasn't quite learned yet, right? But yeah. I mean, I, I think this is great as a comedy beat, but also Dragon wants more than just the facts. Like she doesn't want to know just factually how the team is doing. She wants to know how are you doing? Like, tell me. And in the way you answer this question, I will learn how you are doing. And the answer is not not great. They're not doing great. And I, and I love that Victoria's answer here is kind of sort of a non-answer too. like they ask, how are you doing in surgery, recovering in for a third surgery, worrying, waiting in the dark, recovering and attending this meeting? I guess it's a mess. It's not really an answer like it like it is and it isn't right. It's like, it's it's a lot of very factual. It's like what you've been doing. Well, I've been in surgery. I've been recovering. Uh, we've we've been waiting in a third surgery like it. it is both like the, 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 the feeling you get from this question is like, how are you doing with this? Like she obviously knows Kenzie's current state like she knows like factually, but that's not the answer she's really going for here. And she doesn't really get it other than just it's a mess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I kind of feel like dragon can read between the lines that it's like, uh, okay, not yeah. well. Um, but yeah, I mean, Victoria doesn't give her the, um, she doesn't uh, open up no, to her. No, exactly. Uh, so we also learned that advance guard who were basically the other group of heroes who went off to attack the villains. They killed some of the villains that they attacked. So now like the, the status quo is even worse now. Yeah, well, they got ambushed too, right? That was Spear Team One or whatever. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess so. Or I'm not sure if I necessarily took that implication. Well, um, I'm, they definitely killed some. Yeah, people, I mean, they, they killed. So. They killed the like. I think. I think the villains that they were meeting to attack were. It was like a setup, and Spear Team mm -hmm. One was waiting there, and they killed some of the villains in that scuffle. Is what I got. Like, because it said like. Like the warning didn't get to them in time. They didn't they weren't aware that it was a setup. Um, and so they walked into a trap and had to kill their way out of it. Yeah. But I mean, the end result is that uh, heroes killed a bunch of bad guys. Um, all sides are tense. People are scared. Dragon hopes things are going to level out. And Victoria is just like, uh, -uh. <laughs> that's that's not not anytime soon. Right. Yeah. So there's this moment where um, Dragon brings up Paddletail, assuming that Victoria is probing for information about her, when actually she's she's not. Uh, and then Dragon expresses that Victoria has the right to pry into kind of personal matters like that, but, you know, since Citrine okayed it, but Dragon and Defiant will not necessarily like it if she does. Sure she wasn't thinking about Tattletail. <laughs> I, I kind of bought her, her refusal, like her, her inner monologue wasn't, focused on tattletale in yeah that moment. that's true i kind of feel like she's got more in her mind okay. and then i mean subsequent to that we got this this absolutely insane moment where victoria gives her the benefit of the doubt <laughs> does she um, though <laughs> dragon says tattletale has declared herself neutral in this in the revenge dominance asserting of strength that the other villains are intent on good for her i said not quite dragon said um which you know I, I don't think it was a sarcastic good for her. I think it was like almost like a hopeful good for her. Like, I don't know. I, 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 I view Victoria as like wanting Tattletale to be better I, and being disappointed. I don't in know her. how you can read good for her when Victoria is talking about Tattletale as non-sarcastic. Like I, I there because is no way, like there's no way in my mind that that was not said in the kind of sarcastic way. Because I want them to be best <laughs> friends is why. Like I just, I can't see 
Victoria saying the words good for her about Lisa without putting a little bit of sarcasm on there. Well, especially in the I context just, of this conversation. See, oh, I see. I don't read. I don't really read Victoria as being capable of sarcasm in this moment. Like, I think she's just like crushed and exhausted. <laughs> but it's interesting. I mean, it's always interesting to me when there's different reads on on stuff like this. Because I'm like, well, why do why do I think that it was said with this tone? I think you, I think it's just that you want these characters to be best friends, and I don't think they're they're yeah. there yet, Matt. There's a lot to it. Yeah, there's a lot to that. Um, so I also like this moment. This like, I think of it as cinematic. Although I guess it's just it's easy to visualize. Yeah. Where Dragon says again, I'm sorry for the timing. I know you'd rather be at the hospital. No, I said. I looked out the window. The person in my reflection looked more angry than weary. I'm so tired of hospitals. A break is good. Yeah, it's really great. And I love, again, we have juxtaposition here, right? Like her voice says, I'm tired of hospitals. A break is good. Like her her voice says weary. The, her, the word she says says she's weary, says she's tired. But the look she gives is just angry. Like and and, and the, yeah. the the difference between those two things. Like there there is anger stewing underneath all of this. She's more angry than she is tired, and um, that's a it's it's gonna be something. Yeah. Well, and I mean that's all. Like we've seen like this the the, the arc is polarized. We've seen the sides of this thing like move to the extremes, right? We have the villains that are extremely pissed off. We have the heroes that are extremely pissed off. And, and, and up until this moment, I think we had breakthrough kind of like stuck in the middle, right? Where like they were angry. They were hurt at what happened, but they really wanted to focus on the people who were responsible specifically stopping those people before this spread out of control. And you just get the hint here that maybe breakthrough, maybe Victoria has been a little polarized by this incident as well maybe it's pushed her to an extreme as well yeah and i don't think she's mad at like the villains in general the same way like advanced guard is but but she's mad at at whatever hand is behind the scenes that is moving the pieces in you know to to make these ambushes to uh i mean I, i feel like i feel like a lot of the things that have happened in the story are tied together right like and and not and not necessarily in the way that we've been shown like like okay teacher and the fallen banded together to um to do the portal attack uh okay um but i feel like i feel like there's more to it than that like i feel like that's part of i feel like that was like an opening play in in the conflict that we've seen up till now you know i feel like it's all related and and we're gonna i don't really have like a grand unifying theory of, of who's behind things but um, I feel like in retrospect, it's all going to make sense and be part of the yeah. same. Tapestry. And I mean, you're absolutely right. That's the people she wants to go after. Like it, it, it's it, it's yeah. not her just like, I want to kill all the bad guys. It's I want to yeah, kill right. this bad guy. Like I, I it's it's almost her giving up on the street level kind of heroic enforcement that they've been doing and, and wanting to go on the offensive. Right. Like, I think that's the yeah. fundamental shift here. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, so this chapter ends with the Chris, uh, well, not reveal, but uh, the Chris implication. <laughs> um, and and that that's 
so I'm just going to frame it. That starts with uh, Victoria saying, I'm feeling, like, I'm feeling like we should just cut through this Gordian knot. Screw the secrecy, screw decorum, just go after the masterminds. Others have tried. It's trickier than it might seem. I sighed. On that subject, Dragon said, my apologies for the awkward segue. Uh, so, masterminds, on that subject, awkward segue to Chris. What are you trying to say here, Matt? I'm trying to say Chris's mastermind. Did you write this before or after you read the chapter? I wrote this before. Oh, no, sure. <laughs> no, I no, I actually think that's a very good catch, and it's something I didn't I didn't pick up on my first read through was that that, that is like it is an awkward segue, but it is a, a on that subject segue. So yeah, right. I mean, there's something mastermindy going on with this guy. Yeah. Uh, so basically dragon is now giving Victoria, uh, Jessica's files on breakthrough. And we learn offhand that like, nobody's really looking for Jessica yeah. anymore, which is ironic because like he's coming back, he's been found. Yeah. Uh, and Interestingly, like Darnall can't accept the files. Um, did I did I like skip over? Did he say why, or is it no, just he just he's yeah, too busy? Well, yeah, he just wouldn't. I mean, it goes it goes right wouldn't. from him saying no to saying that uh, Weldon, everyone's back, and no one's really looking for Jessica. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I got you. Uh, yeah, so we get snippets of like her notes on the other characters, and we mostly know this information. We don't necessarily know uh, how bad things are with Sveta. That was the one that kind of stuck out with me as like a little bit of context where it says about her pervasive feelings of betrayal, lack of trust, including in herself. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of these are pretty obvious, right? Like killed brother, murder charges. That's pretty obvious. Fallen with relations to the McVeigh blackmail, individual already in compromising position sought counsel, but this message was intercepted, um, which that's an interesting implication, right? Like, so Kenzie's blackmailing someone, individual already in compromising position sought counsel, but this message was intercepted. So they knew that Kenzie was blackmailing someone and didn't care. Yeah, I, I'm not I'm not entirely sure how to parse that, yeah. honestly. And then there's suicidal ideation. So we were just talking about how this these people value life. Um, so who, this is the one I couldn't. Like parse. I immediately go to to Byron. Yeah, yeah, I guess um, that's true. I, I for, seems like I did the the, I did the thing where I. I treated Byron and Tristan as one person. <laughs> Shit. I'm sorry, Byron. Yeah. 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 That just seems like the most, um, I mean, it could, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if one of the others had had some of it, but like we, we're pretty sure that Byron has. Yeah. So. And, uh, and potential bipolar diagnosis. That's, that's good old Ashley, right? <laughs> yeah. Yep. I, I think yeah. that's right. Um, and then, so this great moment where she like closes the window and she's like, I shouldn't be reading this. And then dragons like, <laughs> You, you should. definitely and, should. And then and this is Chris, I realized. I read some of the general notes, clicked a button, and read another page. Fuck, I said. <laughs> it's, just a, it's a wonderful, like, I think, I, I don't know about you, there's an interlude, we know there's an interlude that comes after this. I think that's it for the arc, to me. I think this is how the arc ends. And we could be wrong, we'll find out. Um, but this is, a, if it is, I think this is a wonderful capstone on the arc. Like, whatever is going on with Chris that you know about because you read ahead. Like I wanted to have this cool game where we would like play the game. It was like, what's going on with Chris? But you ruined it because you read the chapter and it just is 
Just yeah. it feels fun to play it by myself. I know. I'm sorry. You know, I tried not reading the chapter, and that didn't last for more than a couple minutes, honestly. I don't so, blame you. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, look forward to your two your tweets, though. <laughs> That'll be a Thursday. Um, yeah, so, I mean, so we, we end on this moment, and we have no idea what it is, but we know it's bad. Like, pretty strong indication that that this this mystery in the air of the person that Jessica was worried about more than anything was Chris, right? I mean, like, maybe we should have this conversation again after we talked about that chapter but um it 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 seems to be like if the reason drag dragon's giving this file now is because jessica's not coming back and someone needs to know the seriousness of the situation and the seriousness of the situation seems to be whatever causes victoria to say fuck about chris um that 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 he it was this is our answer mm-hmm. yep it's all it's pretty pretty great pretty great ending i i, I kind of yeah, I feel like you're right about the, this being the end of the, the arc, mm-hmm. though. But um, it feels like a good I've idea. Never, I've never been right before. So. <laughs> That's not true. You're like there had just been one time. Yeah, just statistically. <laughs> but yeah, that's the end. Um, yeah. All right, so let's let's wrap up with some name game. Um, and Annalise is is like an old like 13th to 16th century. Um, short sword slash long dagger, and and like if you look at a picture, they tend to have like a wider blade than you than you typically think of from like a sword. Um, it's kind of like the sort of sword that folks carry around for self defense. Yeah. I could have sworn we did his name before, but maybe I'm just missing. Maybe, we need to remember. start writing these down <laughs> so we don't do yeah. them over again. Yeah, uh, brio apparently means vigor and vivacity. Which is sad because he's dead. Yep, that's ironic <laughs> right there. Uh, noontide just actually just means nude, n- noon, yeah. like like midday. Or the highest and best point or part, um, which is interesting because that doesn't seem to tie into what we know about her power. Like part of me wonders if there's a like a um, a themed name connection with the other guy, uh, with with Thunderdome guy, because we didn't learn what his name was. Um, so maybe there's some thematic stuff going on there and, and noontide will make a lot more sense in context of him but uh we don't really know yet yeah um and then finally i just love this throwaway reference to the witten particle like I'm, I'm pretty sure there's not actually a witten particle um uh kenzie refers to it as a gravity particle and uh, ed witten is a is a fields medalist um and l- let me see a Basically, he's just an all-around like badass. He's done a lot of work in like um, mathematics and the sorts of theories that are related to uh, string theory or like encompass string theory. Basically, just kind of a, a heavy-hitting um, dude who's trying to rectify um, gravity with physics. So I think it's cool to, to kind of just say like on bet same physicists but different ones are the ones that made certain discoveries because obviously they know different things about physics because capes just kind of like nerd (laughs) i yes (laughs) yes and then the discussion question this week uh here here it goes physical descriptions of complex scenarios are a particularly challenging thing to write Highlight a passage where Wildbow successfully conveys a complex physical situation in his stories. 
So what spurred me to write this was her her tussle uh, with Arena Man, and just like me re- reading it and realizing like, wow, this like I I can picture exactly what's happening. Like wh- wh- I, I could like. I can almost like draw where everyone's limbs are at any given point in time, like who's on top of the pile and how the bodies are oriented. I'm like, that's really hard to do. I don't know if if you ever tried to do that. That's really hard to, to do even, even for a relatively simple situation because you, you kind of run out of, yeah, it's hard to explain even why it's hard to do, but Wildbo does it really well in general. Um, And I'm not just saying like right about times when people have wrestled on the floor I kind of mean like any any anything where it was like you read it and then and then you had the realization of like man it's actually really hard to convey the 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 um the image of of what's happening right here but he but he did it in a way that not only conveys the image but conveys like the contextual information that you need to know to kind of understand the subsequent action yeah so yeah I want to focus more on kind of like a, a certain kind of descriptive writing, I guess, is what I'm aiming for. All right, for. so I'll put all that in the um, discussion question yep. section on the show notes. Yep. Okay. <laughs> so just Sounds read good. that paragraph and then uh, answer the question. No, I think this is a really yep. good question. I'm interested to see what people come up with here. I think this is a more challenging one. Like it's, it's gonna. I think it's gonna require people to do some rereading and some research. Um, I, I look forward to see what people come up with. Yeah, and that's all we got for you this week on We've Got Ward. You guys are all part of this show, so feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's You can reading. reach us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or over on Twitter at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is at scottdaily85, and Matt's is at Thunderdome. Um, someone asked me the other day if I've ever actually like spelled out your Twitter name before um, on any of the shows, and... I don't think I have. See, the whole thing started because I I find it completely unpronounceable and I just can't do it. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, I think if anybody really wants to do that, they're going to like go to the website or something. Hey, Matt, what's wrong with at Matt Freeman? Um, I I mean, first of all, there's probably like a hundred million Matt Freemans on this planet. What about at Matt Freeman doof? Uh, I mean, you know, a man has to have his quirks, Scott. And my quirk is an unpronounceable handle that I then make people. It's pronounce. right next to your face right now. I don't know if it's you true. knew that. I, I, I did. Put I see there. it on the screen. Yeah. I see it right yeah. there. And anyway, <laughs> though, besides all that, if you're not already subscribed, we've got Ward. We strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, uh, Twitter, uh, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find this and all of the other podcasts we do over at doofmedia.com. We've got a new episode of the Doofcast this week where we're going to be talking about um, Live, Die, Repeat, or Edge of Tomorrow, as the studios called it. I like Live, Die, Repeat better. Yeah. And new episodes of Out to View, um, all kinds of new stuff. It's very exciting. It's the end of the year. Mm-hmm. We're doing like a we're looking back on our year and and making goals for next year. It's an exciting time to be listening to all our stuff. So do 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 all that. Yeah. And if you like any of our shows and you want to support them, consider donating to our Patreon account, patreon.com slash doof media. You can donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. 
Supporting us on Patreon gives you tons of great bonuses like voting in our quarterly fan art and costume contests, Q&A sessions, access to live streams of our recording sessions, and our excellent Discord chat. And this week, special thanks to new Bidoofs, C. Mick at the $1 level, uh, Ryan R. at the $1 level, Adam R. at the $1 level, um, R- Richard M. at the $2 level, and uh, Mark Andre at the $5 level. Uh, we appreciate all of, of you guys so much. Um, and just thanks yeah, so much. Yeah, and we're God, we're 16 bucks away from our new goal, Matt. So we're starting to like gather resources to actually pull off that goal. So it's it's a very exciting time. Um we also Matt, we just hit uh our two hundredth patron today. One of, I forget which one it was of these people we just read, but we just hit two hundred, which is crazy. Two hundred people. I never I never thought we'd get there, and that's uh, that's a milestone. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I mean, just within this year, speaking of wrapping up the year, it's been um, it's been a really wild ride. It's been been wonderful. Thank you to everyone that supports us, um, whether through Patreon or just supporting us by sharing the podcast and um, and spreading the word about Doof Media. Thank you guys so much. Um, Yeah. Um, So and speaking of thanks, we should all thank Wildbo. Yep. So I'll head over to his Patreon, patreon.com slash wildbow, donate to him as well, because this is his world and we're just yeah, playing he, in it. Yeah, he, um, he writes the book that we talk about. I don't know if you right. guys knew it would that. Be really, yeah, it would be really, I admit, it would be really difficult to do this podcast unless he had written yeah. these books. Yeah. <laughs> All right, and if you can't afford to donate right now, that is absolutely okay. You can instead help us out by doing what we just said. Uh, spreading the word writing a a podcast review on on apple podcasts for us writing rating reviewing sharing all that good stuff we don't have any new reviews to read this week either um so i i I can't read y'all's nice words or mean words you can write us a bad review i'll read it i might be mean to you afterwards but i'll I'll do it yeah i mean please don't though but you can yeah i mean don't but please don't like i'm not telling you not to do it but don't but don't i'm asking you not to (laughs) All right, that's all for this week. Next week, it's the Chris interlude. Can I can I go read it now? Yes. I'm going to I'm going to go read it right now. Yes. Do it. Okay. Okay. I'm going to go read it. Bye.